top of the table, that's exciting. Bottom of the table, that's exciting. Like that's the sort of football that you want to be in. These are the pressure games that in 15, 20 years time, I will look back on and I will remember these are the important matches for me, not the middle of the table teams. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM. With Gillette, put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. All right, it's half past seven on Monday morning. If you missed it, the LA Rams were successful last night in the Super Bowl. It ended up being pretty close in the end. Slightly dodgy refereeing decisions uh, going the way of the home team and the home crowd. Um, But uh, probably justice was done overall, given that the Bengals ended up having two possessions in the last 10 minutes and didn't score from it. But that's not really the big story. The big story is that the halftime show was amazing, right? Absolutely sensational. Like, I didn't see... Prince in 2007 so we do like before Prince and after Prince I would say it's the, the greatest Super Bowl show of all time well they they, um, they played all the hits mm-hmm. I don't know did they miss anything maybe they did but I think everything you wanted to be there was there uh, we were talking about is this it is we can't talk about this now we have to wait for a couple of minutes to talk about this do we because it's going to be in the performance rankings which the Super Bowl the, the, the halftime show? show no I think the halftime show is actually not included in the performance ranking so get See, your I, takes I in think, now I already think this week's performance ranking is missing because uh, that for me that was the highlight so my my big thing watching it uh, uh, was 50 Cent is in it right yeah. they, they've, they've put their arms around 50 after he went broke and they've helped him make some of the money back it looks like maybe you know all that bling cost a bit of money and he didn't really fully understand how Appreciation worked, and he's uh, he was like you know uh, cash poor for a long period of time. But they they brought him back, and they include him in that because he's not really at that level. He shouldn't be there. There's no justification. Fifty is kind of a one and a half hit wonder, right? A bit 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 harsh, but I I agree. If with he you didn't have a song it. about birthday, yeah. it wouldn't get reeled out every year because people don't want to pay the royalties for a happy birthday. Like I mean, uh, this may be controversial, but I'd have Eminem and Fifty Cent in the same category of. Um, not amazing to be quite honest with you you're about to get cancelled keep going tell me more about that go on I, I just think that if you look at the other people that they were sharing a stage with yesterday I think that Kendrick Lamar is in a completely different stratosphere to both Eminem and 50 Cent and you can put Dre right in there as well I, I mean everybody watching that Dre right night, in where in, oh, oh in the Kendrick category okay especially given I mean like everybody watching that last night just wanted Dr. Dre to just be their dad that, like everybody just he, he was the, the spiritual leader of that crew last night and by far and away the most respected person on that stage on an amazing stage by the way like even when he goes and plays the first couple of keys live to, to Still Dre and you've got Anderson Pack on drums behind in fairness Eminem takes a knee at this point it's like wow this is this is actually pretty special I mean you don't get that with a Super Bowl halftime show it's supposed to be like wow blow me away with uh, uh, Bruno Mars uh, Bruno Mars or Lady Gaga hanging off uh, a stadium which you know is is amazing yeah. but this was actually like deeply impactful I, w- I would go as far as to say it was like it was it was that good maybe I'm not sure but I, I missed the kneel in real time <laughs> yeah, well, okay the kneel thing I mean it was it went, it went on for quite some time it was a long kneel yeah I think he could have done it again at the end just to remind everybody that he'd done it in the first place but anyway uh, the thing about 50 was that he was hanging upside down like Batman when the camera pans to him he's singing really badly upside down was that not just a hammer trick no because everybody else was the other way around okay and then he, he drops down but they missed the drop <laughs> It's like his big moments. Fifty's like he's back. Look at me, I'm athletic. I'm here on the. No, I mean maybe you're right. I thought it was a camera trick. 
I, I genuinely thought it was a camera trick. That was that was my take, and I need to, I need to go back and rewatch it. I haven't really see. This is it. This is this is the levels to the halftime show we're talking about here. This is this is like that 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 tracking shot in True Detective when everybody's marveling about that unbelievable director. That's what we're talking about last night when it comes to the Super Bowl halftime show. Was Fifty Cent upside down or not? That is that is the key question from last night. Well, it, his his his. His the bling around his neck was kind of hanging around his mouth. Was it okay? Yeah. I, I might have just completely. Well, I think because the camera they they blew it. The director blew, blew it. it. Okay, fair. It's fair. like that's what I thought. If if you if you've got a view on the halftime show, we'd like to hear from you. You can uh, leave a comment in the YouTube stream. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure the reaction to it. Like you stayed up to watch it. I caught up on everything this morning. I'm sure the reaction then live time is like this is. I went to bed. I went to bed. I, I, to bed. I could, yeah, I had to, and then set the alarm for middle of the night. So sorry, you did something similar. So. Um, like it was, um, yeah, like genuinely right up there is one of the better ones you're ever going to see. There's actually no way you can do this show and stay up and watch the Super Bowl. There is, but you end up dribbling, as we found out in the past. Yeah, did it, did it the first couple of years, and it's just it just ruins your entire week. The week is gone. Yeah, it, it is, and you do miss details for sure. I'm sure. I'm, I'm like maybe maybe there was commentary right after the 50 Cent Batman moment that people saw live last night that was uh, given a little bit of context by the commentator. Well, the commentators don't know what to do because they, really they haven't a clue. They're like, oh, here are some popular acts. Are they Are they artists? Do we call them artists? Is it a band? How does this work? It, 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 yeah, it's a, it's a wide scope of the United States of America when you go from 50 Cent to Joe Buck. They, they definitely look at the world in a different way, I'd suggest. My favourite part of the halftime show... Well, sorry, not my favourite part. One of my favourite parts. 77-year-old Al Michaels doing it last night. Oh, was it? Yeah. Ah, sorry, sorry. Okay. Um, they swap every year today. Oh, this is his last one because uh, he's joining Amazon right. for like Scrooge McDuck money. Mm, okay. Well, good for him. Good yeah. for Al. Um, Evan McPherson stayed out and watched the halftime show. Is, there, I, is this a thing? Is this, does this happen? I've, I've never seen a kicker stay out and watch it. Like, I, in a way, I'm like fair play to you. First of all, because he was absolutely loving life. He was really loving it. He was like chatting to uh, like some of the staff around the stadium as he was just you know basking in the glory of of Kendrick and and Snoop and um, was Snoop in uh, Rams colors on purpose. Oh, I don't know. I, uh, was, yeah, I, I, I didn't, mean, didn't cop that. Is he not a Raiders fan? Is that not the whole point about the Raiders documentary, the ESPN 30 uh, for 30? Was he not like, maybe because they left LA, he was like, screw you? Maybe. He's a USC yeah. fan. Yeah. Uh, and so, I don't Same know. colors, I guess. Is it? I think so. Okay, well then, okay. All right. Snoop gets a free pass. Um, but, yeah, like, I mean, if you're, the, if you're the kicker in a team and you're saying to your coach... Listen, I just want to see this. I'm not going in for the halftime team talk. I think you deserve a lot of applause. And, and you know what? He's been uh, he's been fairly automatic anyway with the with the boot all year. And long. he nearly got his moment, but it didn't it didn't quite happen for them at the end. We'll get into that with Mike Carson a little bit later on. Um, I'll tell you what else is coming up now. A reminder: OTBAM brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with our new and improved razors. We have the Gillette performance rankings coming right now. Andy Mitten's going to join us at 10 past 8. Tricky, tricky time for Manchester United at the moment. Alan Quinlan's going to join us to look back on disappointment for Ireland in the rugby at half 8. Kieran Carey's going to join us. Interesting week for uh, for Limerick. Uh, Galway showed up physically and mentally and they were prepared and I think they're going to have a big leap in the performance rankings. Ashley O'Reilly was in Paris. She'll give us her thoughts at 5 past 9. Mike Carlton at 9.15. And then you can hear from Malcolm O'Kelly at half past nine this morning. At 7.37, though, it's time for the performance rankings. You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head. That performance is just lacked that intensity. 
Oh, Peter G. Sorry about that. No spoiler alert. Jesus. No, no spoiler alert. Sorry. I, w- I was thinking that it was like the li- literally within five seconds of you coming on air, you had blown the whole thing for people who were just waking up. But the whole point of this is that we're telling you what happened overnight in case you missed it. I would, I would agree. What are you going to do? Watch the. Uh, I suppose you could watch the 14 minute highlights. I'm also sure that he's not even referring to the match he's just referring to the halftime show and how he, he spoils the 50 cent thing because that, that's you want to come to that with a, with a degree of surprise imagine if you're 50 though and you've put all this time and effort and like political and social capital into getting back in and to be a member of the gang and you've got this cool move that you're like no bro I'm going to do this move I have to it's like <laughs> this is my big chance and the camera pans over to the one of the dancers and misses it you're like we- what you know he's playing Dublin later this year. All right, so we are, do the same are you thing. more or less tempted to, to go? Let's after get him, him on the phone. Yeah, no, let's no. get him on the phone. Come as well. on, that's our excuse. Yeah, get him in studio. Um, I take back my bit earlier on when I said you're like completely overrated. <laughs> 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 I've changed my tune on that one. Do, do not, do not, uh, please do not watch back uh, OTBAM on the 14th of February 2022. We slaughtered you. Uh, Brian Dillon says, lads, that pass interference call, absolute shambles. Also, I'm too old to be staying up and working today. If I milk half the cows this morning, it'll be a miracle. Maybe if you half milk all of them, they'll be fine. Good luck with that, Brian. <laughs> oh, right. Like I mean, that's one. Th- it's one thing coming in and sitting at a desk and talking nonsense after that, but to actually get up and do physical work after staying up all night—that is, that is next level stuff. Fair play. Everybody knows that we couldn't get up and do physical stuff anyway, on yeah, <laughs> irrespective of whether or not we were up all night last night. Look at look at these point. beautiful uncallous hands that we have. Yeah, where are we starting? We we'll start with the rugby and Ireland's decision making has uh, got to go in the red. And it's been a big talking point, I think, after Saturday night. There's a lot of different ways we can go with this, but I guess if we start at the decision itself to, to go for the post rather than going for the corner in a game that would have been a, a fairly important staging post that Ireland actually got the job done because France were pretty good. They were they've, uh, kind of... This is, I think, did you put it as a coming out party for France this year Six Nations kind of definitely felt like this was a significant moment for them at the weekend a really big win for them and Ireland had an opportunity to set them back a little bit in that which could prove to be significant in 12-18 months time so we're not sure how that's going to play out on that front but in the here and now I think the big talking point will be around that decision something that the Ireland camp are saying that they got right so just to, uh, I didn't see the on-field interviews with the captain and uh, with Carberry who made the decision, but it felt a little bit like there was uncertainty there because it wasn't just the two of them. Henderson was walking up, mm. O'Mahony was there. Yeah, It was like um, a horse designed by committee is a camel. And like, in fairness, one thing we should start, the Joey Carberry's, kicking metronomic it's like every time he stands over you're like he's going to kick this uh, is there a world in which so they, they've defended this by saying we, we did have another opportunity they had they had two more opportunities it's the subsequent decision making which is also really bad that highlights how bad this is because there's a like they get the ball back it's just they're deep in French territory mm. and they do get another opportunity but they blow it yeah so does that does that vindicate the decision I don't and it's know. actually the decision making on the second instance, what? which is the worst. But see, the thing is, what you want is if you get that opportunity and you're in French territory, you it would be better to be in French territory with a lead than to be chasing another three points, right? Or to be chasing what, what should realistically be four points, which is which is a wrong number. Like, because I, I, I can't imagine that Aaron were playing for the draw. I can't imagine that if they got. You know, if they were in that that moment in the end, of course they would they would take the three points if if you've only got a couple of minutes left for the draw. But at the outset, 
they should have been thinking, how do we win this game rather than how do we draw this game? And that was the only way they could have been thinking when they were going for that three points, I would suggest. Also, as well, when you add into the mix the fact that they were on three tries at that point, that's an added little sweetener to, to get another one. Not that you needed one. I think the win should be enough. Well, uh, you know, you're guaranteeing yourself a second losing bonus point or at least one losing bonus point if they score miraculously uh, eight points in the next while. I, I Look, a couple of things strike me. The, the famous decision that England made uh, when Lancaster was coach where there was just like not clear thinking. It's, it happened in a World Cup yeah. because the players didn't have the experience. So I, I'm kind of of the view that if this is a mistake and they decide what the future, what, what will happen, who will make the call, how the call will be made, who has ultimate responsibility for it. Because you heard Gavin Comiskey making the point to you yesterday in the papers that, you know, that's the out-house decision. It, it, sometimes, though, the captain, if he's the forward, if he doesn't have faith in the line-out and the line-out's gone creaky, then he's like, look, you're just going to take this and we're gonna, we're, we've got you, don't worry. Like, yeah. but afterwards, just to say bulletproof, like they're that's what they have to do. They have to defend themselves. We had this conversation recently about Jack Crowley for Munster in that game against Cash, and about whether or not Jack Crowley should have been the man with the responsibility to go for the post or to go for the corner, given he was a rookie essentially at at that level, European wise. Got to remember that this is also Joey Carberry's first start. Granted, he's picked up a hell of a lot of experience throughout his five or six years in professional rugby so far already, but still, these are significant moments in Joey Carberry's understanding of, of big games, right? So, like, I, I think that they're, they're not poles apart, these two situations. No, I, I can understand why they did it. And I think that um, if they had managed to get the ball back again and do something with it, as opposed to getting the ball back and not doing something with it, we would be like, oh, what a great decision that was, because kept the scoreboard ticking over. Like, there's a bit of scoreboard journalism going on in the aftermath of it. But I, I think that that, that that bit of the decision-making... Uh, I, they can defend it. That's their. That's fair enough. But what happened afterwards is bad. Like it was just bad. We 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 end up with the forward pass. We end up with handling errors. We end up not putting France under the type of pressure that we were putting them under in that second half when we were making our furious comeback. Yeah, and part of that process was uh, on the decision making front was taking Joey Carberry out of there and putting Jack Carty in there. And that's not a slight on Jack Carty whatsoever. It's to do with the fact that. You're being thrown in at a pretty awkward time. I presume as somebody who's going to be playing that pass, which ends up going forward, you kind of want a few more minutes under your belt. You want to feel your way into the game a little bit. But you're thrown right into a really, really sticky situation immediately. And maybe they figured that Carby wasn't going to be able to play 80 beforehand. But that feels like a premeditated... <laughs> like, it's true. I mean, But I feel... Yeah, well, like, uh, it, that, it, that would have been a strange premeditated decision, wouldn't it? to take somebody off after 78 minutes that'd be a very weird number to come up with uh, but if it was premeditated in the first place that's obviously not good your in-game management needs to be in-game not premeditated but I, like, while this is open to criticism I really believe that it, that it was a bad call this is not to say that this can't be good in the long run and when you talk about scoreboard journalism there scoreboard journalism will go 10 times this magnitude if this happens in a World Cup because that is literally all that matters and like yeah. it, all that matters is is, is, you, is you win or you lose and you're, you're in or you're out when it, when it comes to the knockout stages of a World Cup so that's the context I think that's informing this Let's hear from Andy Farrell and James Ryan here on the decision to kick Just felt like it was the, the right decision at the time um, I think we were uh, we were imposing our game on them at, the, at that period we felt confident in our in our attack and we thought we'd uh, bring the the game to three points, and I think we backed ourselves to to go win the game. Then 
off the back of that? It's the, it's the right decision. There's no doubt about that. Um, uh, they feel the game. They're in the moment. They, they, they understand what's happening. There was plenty of time left. In fact, didn't we have a line-out um, after that um, to go on um, when there was a couple of points down because we... We got the three points back. We had a line out and an opportunity to, to score the try, and we didn't. And, and, and that's the game. So uh, I backed them to make those calls. Yeah, OK. So look, that I think is um, a big opportunity. And I think this is exactly why we needed not to play Sexton in every game because like, we don't know what they'll do the next time. But we do know that they now have some video evidence where they're like, OK, let's just kick for the corner next time. Or let's, let's make sure we don't kick for the corner the next time. But when we do, in the final three minutes, that we're far more clinical than we were then. Mm. And look, it's interesting that you made the comparison between this and the, the Wales-England game in 2015. What England did in the aftermath of that and the wider scale of the disaster was to throw the baby out with the bathwater with, with significant effect. Uh, the good news for Ireland is that they don't have the luxury of doing that. They don't have uh, like a, a pool of players to step in. But not that that's what they should do anyway. No, it's and like, it's I mean, the opposite of that. It's actually give these guys again the, exactly. the, the opportunity to get into it. Like I was just thinking overnight, what um, what's the team going to be for the Italy game? Like I would make a swathe of changes. Anybody who's in the squad starts. Uh, you get... I would I would start... Carberry and I would probably start Gibson Park so that they can build a bit of a, a partnership and you start Henshaw and you start Coombs and uh, you bring back Herring and it's a completely different team and so everybody has a little time to rest up in advance of the final push for the two big games and there's still a championship there for them this year and if they don't get the championship then they better feel the pain of not getting a championship and just how narrow the margins are in these big games and learn from it like I think this is much better for us than... I, I still see people in the papers saying, oh, Ireland are the best front row in the world. I think we don't. We don't have the best front row in the world. We need to stop saying that we're the best at this and the best at that. We lost the game at the weekend, and that's okay. But let's not get to the point where it's like blind faith. Do we have the best rugby playing front row in the world? Though? I mean, Owen, I don't, how do you know, <laughs> right? Is, does that not include scrums? We were under pressure in the scrums. We were giving away penalties. Like, take and, and their big lads were so big that they were stopping our big lads smashing them back at various stages like it's okay not to have the best front row in the world it's okay for us to realise that actually the shite that we were talking after the Wales game in some cases was just shite and that's fine <laughs> but do you not see Dan Sheehan's performance that's the, Dan the best Sheehan is in the world. class he is, he is great it's really exciting you do need Ronan Kelleher and Dan Sheehan both to be fit because like that impact off the bench in those final 20 minutes could have been the difference between uh, victory and defeat But and I'm very excited about it and I think Porter has massive potential still over the next couple of years with Furlong I would be like we might just put you on ice until the World Cup now because you're so good mm. we just want to make sure that you're going to be fully fit you go off and you farm for a little while take the year off that's what I would be doing like, instead, he's going to play every minute of every game, the three tests down under against the All Blacks and every minute in the November series. And then next this time next year, he'll just be creaking and be like... I, I think that's, yeah, I, th- I think November will be an interesting one. I, I think maybe the All Blacks in the summer will be a really good test. Cause I, I think Who starts the tests? Okay. At out half. <clears throat> I would be leaning towards definitely starting Carberry in one of them. Which one? I think all three. If he's fit, all three. And put Sexton on the bench if he's fit. I, think, say, I think you start Carberry in test one. No, Joe Schmidt did do that in Australia. In fairness to him. Yeah. And that, that uh, tour where Schmidt's always accused of not trying stuff out. But he did try stuff out on that tour. A bit. It's just our style didn't de- develop. 
didn't evolve or develop. Um, like if Sexton is fit for the Italy game and wants to play, we're like, yeah, okay, you can play twenty minutes at the end. Mm. But actually, maybe not. Maybe you pick Carty for that game. Maybe like just it's it's interesting. Like on on Carberry, obviously, there's been a lot of really glowing stuff written about him over the last couple of days. At half time, when I was looking at the scoreboard and looking at the performance, I was like. I really wish Sexton was out there. Like I, I wasn't wasn't blown away at all by the performance. At full time, though, things have changed a good bit. I thought. I thought like maybe it's just, maybe that this is Horbury journalism looking because Ireland won the second half. Maybe that in, in, informs my view of Carberry in the second half. But I definitely felt he was better in the second half than the first half. It, it almost as if he had realised this is what the standard is, and that intense pace of starting a Test match. In San Denis was yeah was like well, got up to that level almost and our forwards stopped being completely annihilated that helps. by their big forwards that like, helps. their yeah. big men are very big uh, I, so I definitely also felt like there's kind of this weird underrating of France going on still where they have all the best parts of the South African game plan in terms of the brute force and the the sheer energy that you will face when you go up against them but they still have all the best parts of the traditional French style of rugby with unbelievable soft hands incredible runners from deep a goal kicking uh, fullback of course they do and, uh, and and the best player in the world yeah like who can still get better like I, I thought that it was a great game Ireland played very well for a patch got smacked in the mouth early on and came back briefly but then got smacked in the mouth again you know uh, we definitely went it was it was we were f- Facing Mike Tyson in the first half, peak Mike Tyson, not Buster Douglas, Mike Tyson, and didn't have anything really to do to answer that. So that's a very good, important experience for the team. Are you looking at the Mac Hansen try then in the first half and saying to yourself, that's very much a sort of freak instant or fair play for actually finding a way of getting sustainably punched in the mouth? Um, well, it's it's like brilliant opportunism, but also you're not going to that's not going to happen again to us, right? No. So it's like it's not a fluke because that would be to completely devalue the hard work and the effort and the, the incredible execution. But uh, you're unlikely to be able to score that again. The 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 mall try from the lineout was good. Like that was that seemed interesting for us to be able to find space right there. Um, and I th- I thought our hands were terrible in various stages. Like people were making mistakes. So that's there's room for improvement. Like that you can go, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that these penalties that like the difference was we, we outscored them in, in terms of tries the difference was that they were putting so much pressure on us that we were giving away penalties fixable you would suggest like history would show that we get better at that kind of stuff like there's a period of time where we have a few games where we give away a lot of penalties they go off and they do incredible amounts of work on us um, and you know certainly the Schmidt era we would have had periods where we were giving away loads of penalties and then it stopped so this is the time to be having these as opposed to smashing France and going, oh, we've got the best front row in the world and the best second row and the best, well, the best back row, clearly. But like, I mean, that's, that's just, like, would that not just have been bluster anyway? Like, do, do you think that the camp actually believes that? Do you think that that's, a, that's an actual factor in, in how they behave? I think it's no harm running into that French juggernaut and going, okay, that's the standard. Mm. Let's get there. Okay. Uh, move on from rugby now. <laughs> is that uh, a commenter or is that Tommy Rooney? Tommy or is it both? Rooney. Is he just in the YouTube comments, TR93 or something, being like, please move off rugby. We're moving on to Premier League because the top four race. We I've been forced to put this into the red this morning, even though this is a bona fide green 
talking point. But you mean Man United are in red? Man United are in red. West Ham are in red. West Ham are kind of. You mean Spurs are in red. Yeah. Wolves and Arsenal are in green. So therefore, maybe this should fit into the amber where it's going to be wacky races between now and the end of the season. Chelsea could potentially get sucked into it. Who knows? They're all looking up at Chelsea. Chelsea's struggling and limping to a Club World Cup win. Tommy Tuckle, not does, what he once was. Does Abramovich celebrate a World Club Cup win? Is that like yeah, the he ultimate? Does. He thinks that's the best. He, he, yeah, he, for sure. His yacht at the weekend would have been the place to be. Yeah. The, like, oh, Roman Abramovich has now won it all. Permanently uh, did, lit. Did they win? Did Di Matteo win the Club World Cup for I don't think so. I don't think so. Funnily enough, that's why he didn't last. Answer. Oh, yeah, that's true enough. I, I don't know, to be honest. I stopped paying attention to it when it became the format that it is now. Oh, the, there was once upon a time when he did. It was did good. It was good once upon a time. Okay. It was like South America champions versus European champions away we go. Yeah, that, that would probably be a smarter way of doing it. But yeah, maybe Chelsea, they get carried away with their success at the weekend and they get dragged into it as well, which would just make this thing even better. If not, who cares? It's already a bloody good race at the moment. Manchester United setting the tone on Saturday and Tottenham being like, hold my beer on Sunday. And even despite that defeat for Tottenham against Wolves yesterday, you still look at the table and mathematically you're thinking... I kind of fancy Spurs here if they put a run together. That's what you can say about all of these teams. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, you can. And you can, I mean, is it too late for Newcastle to make a push for fourth? <laughs> like, possibly <laughs> not. Their current form seems to be pretty good. Like you, um, you were talking optimistically about Aston Villa a few was, weeks ago. And the, the points they've dropped since has just been disastrous. And if they hadn't dropped those points, I know, if my wife had, whatever, you know. <laughs> <laughs> my wife my had aunt. balls. No, sorry, my aunt. <laughs> Right. Uh, wrong analogy. <laughs> <laughs> I like this uh, Owen on no sleep thing. <laughs> uh, where was I? <laughs> the Premier League, yeah, the top four is, is interesting. Yeah, very, very, we're going to be chatting to Andy Middle later on about Manchester United and um, the one of the factors that has like, made this top four thing very um, intriguing and very exciting uh, it, and very suspenseful is the fact that Manchester United have let her, let themselves down and they've let their fans down because they were the team that were supposed to push for the title well they keep or, getting or, worse and worse they, that's, that's the thing like pre-season you might be saying to yourself right they're clearly just a little bit off the top three they signed Ronaldo from under Manchester City's nose you're like okay this is, this is title challenging stuff now the squads that they've had so you'd have to say that it's been a disaster <laughs> Close enough to a disaster of like, a season. Like, <laughs> the, the, given the, the level that oh, they are sorry, currently we're, operating we're, at. I mean, the only thing we're missing is a central midfielder, but sure, Pop, Pop, he can step up. And maybe McTominay can make the leap. Everybody thinks he's really good. And it's like, no, you're like drawing with Burnley uh, in a game that maybe could have gone either way. Drawing with Southampton in a game that uh, could have gone either way. Alan Shearer's just a headline on his uh, athletic piece. He's become a really good columnist, actually, which I, was an unexpected late-stage blooming of Alan Shearer. Manchester United have become a leaky, noisy, messy club who give their players an excuse to fail. Uh, and there was a line about it. How could you accept any, expect anything else from a club that's so badly run? It's like, this is mad. Um, the, the players have said that they want Pochettino. But the players don't like what Ranić is doing, and Pochettino's going to be worse. He's cancelled bacon buddies. He can't have bacon sandwiches. And, and also, as well, it, it is a strange scenario where we're talking about what the players want and how we all know that this is what the players want. As if there's like some sort of, uh, as, if, as if somebody from Sky Sports News has gone in and, and interviewed all the players as part of a vox pop or something. Like we're, we're getting a constant stream of information. 
from inside the club about somebody's on the WhatsApp group. Yeah, like accidentally because they you know <clears throat> make everybody an admin. Fine, fair enough. <laughs> Suddenly, like we're all watching the WhatsApp group gone. Is that the real Ronaldo or is that somebody pretending to be Ronaldo? Maybe all this information that's coming out is just completely false and somebody in that WhatsApp group is trying to to flush out the reporter in Wagatha Christie form or something like that. Like Mark Critchley's got a good piece this morning which is carried in the, in the Irish Independent about Ronaldo and he asks the question, you know, if Ronaldo's not scoring goals, then really the question is, what is the point of Ronaldo and his, his role in that team? It's his longest barren spell in front of goal in 13 years at this point. It's only six games, which I guess shows the standard that he reached over the last little while. So his current stats, he's uh, 0.53 goals per game in all competitions. He, that's down from 0.81 per game at Juventus last season. 0.4 goals per game in Premier League compared to 0.87 in Serie A last season. Granted, it's a different league, but it is a nosedive compared to last year. Fewer shots per game. Expected goals is down, but uh, his uh, pressures and his volume of pressures is up under Raniuk. So it's almost flipped in terms of how the narrative around Ronaldo was before Christmas where, you know, he's scoring goals but he's not doing much else. Now he's doing a bit of the other stuff and he's not scoring goals. And the screenshots of that miss against Southampton on Saturday afternoon don't paint a pretty picture whatsoever. Uh, we'll come back to this a little bit later and with Andy Mitten and we'll talk about the rest of the, the other teams who are uh, bidding for the top four. Our, our resident Spurs fan seems to have um, gone a little bit quiet in uh, recent days. But if you're out there, we'd love to hear from you if you're our Spurs fans, like what the hell's going on. Um, let's move on to Limerick Hurling in the Amber why are they in the Amber? Well I don't think they're anywhere near dead like uh, I, I, why would we like we can, we can put them in the red for sure I mean like it's not it's not a good performance it's not a, it's, it wasn't a good weekend for Limerick I don't think you can paint it as, as as a good weekend they're beyond the point of you know needing a wake up call they're too good to need a wake up call 27 points to 118 was the full time score on Saturday night what was probably most surprising was like 5 minutes into the game, Limerick were up 1-1 to no score and there was a sense of uh, the inevitable about what they were going to do. They obviously get a bit of a, not a bit, they, got, they get a red card in the game and maybe that's a suggestion that their flirtation with the line has just gone over the line a little bit. That you're going to get back. Remember the, remember the league last year? They got involved in scraps in every game. Yeah. Game on game on game on game they got involved in scraps and they fixed it. Well, uh, I think Don Logue said in the telly that the one caveat you'd have about this Limerick team is their discipline and you know what would have happened if Galana got the line like he should have when Tip were eight, nine, ten points up last year in the Munster final. It would have been very interesting to see what would have happened. I don't know. I still think there's a good chance that they come back, but you don't know. Like I think it's more than a good chance they come back. I, I'm I'm very confident. Fourteen men. It's you know, it's easy. It's easy for them not to come back from that position. And yeah. like you would have to say, he's an important player. So, um, maybe Limerick have just lost something maybe Paul Knerk has lost his superpowers without the water break maybe, maybe that's what's after happening here that once, once you take that away from them that's their secret weapon gone um, I, 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 like, wait. I think they'll be pretty happy with that right every chance the one thing I would say is that um, I'm, I'm like constantly reminded last year in the league when Cork put out kind of a second string or a below par team against Limerick and then never got the opportunity to see what their full team would do against Limerick and didn't beat them in the league and then you roll into the championship and they get destroyed. Eventually, that's what it ends up and you didn't have that opportunity to just... If Limerick had beaten Galway, what they've given Galway is life. Galway is buzzing now. Mm. They have Shefflin, their first big test. They come back from that. Physically, they stand up to everything. You know, they are the one who knocks this week. 
they have no doubts. Yeah. Would you describe Galway as a sucker who were given an even break at the weekend? Exactly. Yeah. Um, potentially, potentially. I, I think that one of the one of the valid criticisms I thought last weekend around Limerick were people saying, where, where is the next bunch of players going to come from? How strong is their depth uh, as the year goes on? And like I think that would be a concern for them. But at the same time, you look at someone like Carl O'Neill. Well, that's it. He scored four points in play and he was... In at 11. So, like, he's, yeah. he's he can... So, Keane Lynch goes to midfield. You've got him. They've got... Yeah, it's like... And I, do, do we should... The main caveat is this is the best hurler in the country who isn't playing for them at the moment. Exactly. Because he's, uh, he's got a progressive manager who understands that Keane Lynch playing there gives an opportunity to blood somebody else. Like, you'd have to say that... They are one of the best managed and best run teams. And look, even the red cards. I mean, it's in a schmozzle. There's a stray stick. Gerard Hegarty's going to miss a game. They'll be all right. Do you think that there's a conversation around Limerick because there is a conversation around Dublin? Like, Do you think that it's it's like on vogue right now, the, the fall of Empire? I don't think there's any conversation about the fall of Limerick, though. No, I don't. Like, See, that's what I'm... Like, I mean, not just trying to make the point here that everything is is fine with Limerick. Like, I guess, show me the the person who's actually saying that Limerick are finished, and I'll probably struggle to to show you who that person is. But I don't know. I I wouldn't be worried about Limerick whatsoever. No, they're they're in the amber because there's at least some hope that we're going to have a good hurling championship. That there might be some close games. Every game won't be a blowout. That's what I hope. And also, I mean, the Munster hurling championship will will throw up something here and there. It's ni- nice and early as well. It's the 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 best competition we have in Irish sport potentially so um, yeah ho- hopefully Limerick get a, a couple of tough games there Edward Freeman says at the game you could see Carberry was cramping up at the end and that's why Farrell had to take him off that's fair enough if he was cramping you gotta go that's fair enough uh, Dahio Shock 6 says the penalty kick was the right call with an unsure line out guaranteeing the losing bonus point at least could be the difference in the final Six Nations table I mean look you know if, if they end up winning the tournament um, on the basis of the losing bonus point then people will be like yeah okay there's a, there's a point to that 100% and the, the shaky line out is also a reasonable point it didn't um, it's, well, what was interesting is just that the Ireland camp were, were very certain in the aftermath that they were they were definitely like this was 100% the, the great call fully fully back the players and all that yeah you got to say that I guess yeah and maybe that's the right thing to do like I fully back the players and uh, on on Tuesday in the um, video session we'll go through the scenarios and the next time this happens maybe they'll make a different decision who knows yeah yeah Possibly, I mean, green. Uh, the green, uh, LA Rams first up in the green. I mean, like when you look back at what they did to get to this point to actually get over the line, I'm not sure how much of an impact the Super Bowl being at home had for them, but it did feel that when we're kind of looking back in the story of it, it'll be like the LA Rams targeted the Super Bowl that was going to take place in Los Angeles, and the whole thing worked out, and it just ties the whole story together, maybe in a neater way than the reality is. But there was definitely a couple of gambles that makes this look like a franchise that was in a hurry. Like hiring McVay at the age of 30 in 2017, the youngest ever Super Bowl winning coach at this point now. John Gruden and Mike Tomlin, the only other people in their 30s to have uh, done this. Trading the two first round picks for Jalen Ramsey in 2019. Pretty ballsy decision, you'd have to say. You'd have to say picking up Odell Beckham Jr. this season. Absolutely brilliant. Ballsy. Oh no, I think it was brilliant. Like, wh- why was everybody else not going after Otto Beckham Jr. Because he's had a bad time in Cleveland. Cleveland's a shit show. Go and get him. Mm. And uh, so he goes off. It looks like he might have done his ACL on the turf. Didn't look good. Um, it was a, one of those non-contact knee injuries. So you, you hope he's okay. But like he was, he's basically scored a touchdown in all of the big games towards the end of the season. First few weeks, not great. 
learned the offence, became a team player, took a tiny bit of attention off the best player in the game on the offensive side at the moment in Cooper Cup, who, when the game is on the line, they get the ball back with about six and a half minutes to go after a fairly horrific drop from uh, Boyd. And he just goes, Cooper Cup. So there's actually a fourth and one. There's a so they they need a yard to keep the drive alive, mm. and they do an end around Cooper Cup, and he makes seven or eight yards, and then he just keeps going back Cooper Cup, Cooper Cup, Cooper Cup, Cooper Cup, and then Cooper Cup ends up getting uh, a pass interference, which wasn't really a pass interference. It was a horrific decision. It looks like, and then Revenge they th- for the face guard, and then they throw a touchdown pass to him, which gets wiped off, and then they throw another touchdown pass to him, where poor Eli Apple who's been the butt of a joke for a long period of time, is now forever going to be in the highlight reel. That is like, the this is the moment the game was won and lost. Yeah. And of course, when like the, we talk about the decision-making process in this team, going for Matt Stafford and getting rid of Jared Goff, in hindsight, obviously a genius move. At the time, possibly didn't look like this was going to be the move that would uh, get a team to the Super Bowl. And, and that, that was because of Stafford's attachment to the Detroit Lions. And I mean, when you're attached to the Detroit Lions, you're going to be the butt of a lot of jokes Yeah, uh, obviously very high pay, highly paid man throughout his entire career but uh, it, it does feel that there's been a couple of storylines that have resulted in Super Bowl wins over the last little while that have just been great vindication stories and the Matt Stafford one is definitely one of those yeah we should talk about Aaron Donald briefly as well he's like the best player in American football at the moment the <coughs> most dominant defender he just turned 30 I think and they were talking to him about retirement afterwards that that story's been floating around and he says oh I'm just going to live in the moment right now maybe that's him saying to Stan Kroenke who is the owner of Arsenal and the owner of the Rams I've just won you a Super Bowl I might retire what would happen if I retired this team would basically implode yeah double double. pay me pay me that's possible that might be going on I don't know Uh, I mean because he could easily play 34-35 you know absolutely obviously his position means that uh, pick up another 30 million a year yeah like I, I, I mean, he's been in the league since about twenty fourteen at this point. I mean, like retiring to peak is a tough thing to do, and I, like they, they obviously had their disappointment in twenty eighteen, and now to actually taste that that sweet success for for the Cronky family and to walk away from it all is a is a tricky thing. But like I mean, for somebody in his position and the, and the attrition rate and all that, I couldn't wouldn't be surprised if if he actually did do it. Are you jealous of? the Rams and the money they spend and the success they have under the the careful stewardship of the Cronky family well I mean we deal in cold hard facts in this show so show me who's spent more money than anybody else in last summer in the Premier League than Arsenal no one is the answer well actually it's, it's more more like Stan kind of does the operation sorry it feels I'm not saying this is the truth it feels like Stan does the operation in in uh, in Los Angeles and his Josh his unwanted son just does the operation in in Arsenal you can run this thing we're not that into okay the last green obviously the last green obviously is uh, the Ireland Club Finals sorry Um, I mean these two conclusions were bonkers absolutely bonkers the the Kilku Kilmacud game we were previewing it on Friday and I think there was a general consensus that this may not be the prettiest game on the eye and that's kind of what happened but just because the game's not pretty on the eye doesn't mean that it doesn't leave itself open to absolutely ridiculous drama and at the very end of extra time Kilku get over the line and get their All-Ireland win with the last kick of the game which made the afternoon even more extraordinary because it came from a fairly extraordinary place with Ballygunner's last gasp goal a last gasp screamer of a goal from about 40 yards 40 yards Paul Flynn-esque it was just a why even try it from there oh my god what it's sensational oh and like for it to come against 
TJ Reid and Bally Hale after what they had done to St Thomas's in the All Ireland semi final was was absolutely incredible. And we, we have, I guess, three crazy moments in the conclusion of this year's All Irelands from TJ Reid to the two late goals on Saturday. And that's what people are going to remember these competitions by. It's going to be really interesting to see if moments like that have a transferable impact on the interest in this competition because this competition now has a new stage and it's got potential for a lot more eyeballs on it. Yeah, like it was up against uh, Six Nations game this weekend. You can't, it's it's hard to judge but it didn't register as much as it should have done and uh, when it ends up being in December, which, will it be this year or will it be next year? What's the the massive fixtures? Does it, like, how long does it take for the split season to fully work? So, um, eventually it's going to end up, that's where it's going to, it'll be in uh, winter and maybe because it's the only thing that's on at that period it will get more pop it's hard to know but for Kilku and for Mickey Moore and for him to get his All-Ireland he was in the backroom team the the coach of the the Derry team that won the All-Ireland in the 90s so that's Mm -hmm. like um, and uh, the various Ulster teams who have reached All-Ireland semi-finals and finals in recent years he's had a hand with Slock Neal and um, it's just a sensational achievement for him and it is like a, a proper end to or a proper exclamation point on an incredible career so it was it's funny because you very rarely hear um, players so stridently express their admiration for a manager in the aftermath of a team when um, you know they, he'd beaten his own club on the way to this like yeah. uh, so that's I thought that was amazing and just fair play to them yeah, uh, like, and if we're, if we're looking at what a, a sport needs to do to kind of get to the next level, it's like, how can a sport be consumed on social media? Well, having two unbelievable moments that can be distilled down and somebody uh, matched the WLR commentary onto the Tichy Cahar pictures from the weekend as well. And it was just magic. So uh, they've definitely ticked that box. If you want to try and get new viewers, well, uh, go viral is yeah, the way of doing it. And have have superpowers, have juggernauts be derailed. Like, doesn't hurt. Have the sacred cows be slaughtered live on TV in dramatic fashion that's class <laughs> well I guess it was it was two sacred cows I would argue I think uh, I think I think we actually went 50-50 on Ballygun or Ballyhale on, uh, on our quick picks on Friday don't mean to brag but uh, well you I mean, did but um, yeah so Ballyhale and Croke's going down the super clubs yeah yeah, I think we all. True, we all picked Kilku as well, though. I think uh, on, on Friday. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I don't think I don't think these were two surprises at all. Uh, I think the Bally, I think the, the hurling was a bigger surprise, but even that wasn't a shock. Right, or close to it. That is this week's performance rankings. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm reliably informed here. Adrian Barry stuck by his uh, local parish, of course. He's, oh, sorry, um, yes, he did. His, uh, he's the senior manager of the under sixes. He's, <laughs> he's appointed himself chief grand pooba. Head co- he wears a Bose headphone uh, headset on the side of his uh, under six training. OTBA and brought to you by Gillette. We're wanting to start with Gillette. Put your best face forward. Their new and improved razors. If you want to get in on some hot, hot, hot performance rankings action. Then tell us who you think should be in the green, who you think should be in the red, who you think should be in amber, and you'll be in the draw for a Gillette starter pack. We'll tell you who won that a little bit later on. Up next, we're going to hear from Andy Mitten. We've got Alan Quinlan. We've got Kieran Carey and Super Bowl reactions still to come. Keep your thoughts and comments rolling in. We'll get to them next. OTB AM. Uh, Andy Mitten is with us to talk about Manchester United now. Andy, good morning to you. Good morning. It's really hard to know where to start because there are so many. It's kind of whack-a-mole at Man United at the moment. Um, as you think a little bit of progress is happening, there's definitely steps backwards. Uh, Alan Shearer in The Athletic is saying the club is badly run and this is them essentially reaping the whirlwind of that. It's hard to argue with that, but in the, in the short term, in the immediate short term, are there any signs of improvement for United fans to hold on to? 
Yeah, if you watch the first half of matches, there's lots of signs of improvement. And if you switch to the, the TV off or leave the stadium at half time, then you'll walk away feeling quite happy with the world if you're a Manchester United fan. The problem in the last three matches has been coming in the second half. It's a question I've put to Ralph Rangnick before the game against Southampton on Saturday. Another draw, another game where United led 1-0, played well in the first half and just dipped off in, in the second half. And and he knows, um, but getting his players to act out what he's asking them to do is proving more difficult. When he speaks, he's, he's very cogent, he's, he's very frank. And I, I appreciate that. I think most Manchester United fans do as well. But the mood is always set by results. And Manchester United's results have not been good enough. United are fifth in the league table. Fortunately for United, the teams around them uh, are even worse at the moment. At least most of them are. But 40 points after 24 games, that's six less than a year ago. The team was scoring a lot less. And it wasn't supposed to be like this after United finished second last year, after they brought in the players that they did. Um, ahead of of this season and it's just very frustrating for fans to see the team play so well and Middlesbrough should have been put out of sight in the FA Cup same with Burnley last week at Turf Moor and while Southampton were better than both of those two previous uh, opponents and their manager quite rightly argued that they that they were worthy of a point it's Southampton at Old Trafford Manchester United with all that attacking talent really should be beating them so what happens now for the rest of the season? Like, Where does the uptick in form come that would at least secure Champions League football next season? They're going to draw every game between now and the end of the season, 1-1 and finish 10th. It feels like that sometimes. It's so frustrating at the moment. Where does the uptick come? I don't think anybody can answer that. At Burnley last week after the game, I spoke to Pete Molyneux. Pete was the guy who is a lifelong fan. He's the guy who, who raised the three years of excuses to Ra Fergie banner in 1989. And he's followed United since the 50s, 60s. And one of the things he said was he's seen this club turn many corners. But one thing he's learned is you never know when that corner is going to be turned. You never know when it's coming. And I thought that was quite interesting. And when you look at United with all the talent that they have in the team, I'm an optimist. I always go into a game watching Manchester United thinking that the team will win. And and that can vanish after five minutes and often has done this season. And the reality is we're two-thirds of the way through 21-22 and Manchester United are fifth out of the FA Cup, out of the League Cup, still in the Champions League. So that's something to look forward to. Trip to Madrid next week against Atletico. Manchester United are taking a big following there. Everyone's looking forward to that. And I, I don't blame fans. That's it's a really exciting tie and Atletico are just as bad or just as good as Manchester United at the moment they're also in fifth with a very similar uh, points total you, you, fans look for like well if this player comes back we'll be better if this player is signed we'll be better it just doesn't work like it hasn't been working like that and Manchester United have consistently failed to equal the sum of their parts and if you look at Southampton they're the opposite they bring lots of players through the youth system they sell players on. They've got a more identifiable uh, style of football and they drew both games against United this season. United really need to be finishing in the top four. But as Ralph Rangnick said, that, that's looking difficult at the moment. I, I still think United will finish fourth. I'm not going to be celebrating that. That shouldn't be a marker of success for a club like Manchester United. But 
that's where we are at the moment. And what does fourth mean? It means Champions League next season. But United are not going to win that because, well, unless you have a freak uh, run, which you can get in cup competitions, and maybe it's that hope that, that kills. But the team are all, are all over the place at the moment. And you said at the start, where do we start with this? You can you can look at the midfield, you can look at the forwards, you can look at the lack of goals, you can look at the the, the number of goals conceded from free kicks, the number of goals not scored from, from corners. There's issues all over the place. I do think that Ralph Rangnick is having some success. I think the football has been pretty good against Southampton first half, Burnley, Middlesbrough. Um, but if the team are not winning at the end of it, and against pretty moderate opponents as well. This isn't against Liverpool or, or City or Chelsea. And they've all, they've all got to come. And we know what happened in, in the autumn. That saw to the end of Ole Gunnar Solskjaer when those teams uh, beat Manchester United pretty convincingly. You say that you're an optimist, Andy, and then all the things you said after that would suggest uh, that you'd have every reason to not be an optimist. Are Manchester United fans... Uh, starting to, to to change that optimism a little bit. Are, are people uh, of a sunnier disposition now getting, I guess, uh, dragged down by what's been happening over the last little while? Because this does seem like it is a situation with no end in sight at the moment. Yeah, it seemed like that for years. What is a Manchester United fan? I'm sure people listening or watching this will have a, a whole variety of opinions. There'll be pessimists, there'll be optimists, there'll be people blaming this player, that player, the manager, the owners, whoever, whoever. And everyone's entitled um, to, to, to that uh, opinion. I still think that there are there are very good players there. And when Edinson Cavani starts a game, I'm, I'm, I'm happier than when he doesn't. I thought that first half against Burnley without um, Ronaldo. In fact, both first halves against Burnley, because he only played them at Old Trafford in December, was, was really encouraging. But this is Burnley. Burnley have won one game in the league so far this season. This was supposed to be a season where Manchester United went toe-to-toe with the best, put a proper title challenge in. So it is all so deflating. And if if I've sounded a little bit pessimistic, maybe that's because my, my sister and her, and her husband and their kids have stayed with us. He's a Manchester City fan, a proper one who's gone for years. Their kids are Manchester City season ticket holders. I'm still disgusted that my sister allowed this situation to happen. <laughs> But it did happen. And then we had a situation at the weekend where he's telling me how good City are as they beat Norwich. Um, I'm obviously annoyed because Manchester United have not beaten Southampton. And then just for good measure, Manchester City's ladies team win the Manchester female uh, women's derby as well. So my sister just looked at me on Saturday night and said, well, at least you've got your health. And I'll cheers for that. That's some consolation. But this is the life of a football fan. You, you, You invest a lot into your team emotionally and you're high when when your team are winning and playing well and, and less so um, when, when that's not happening. And I think on balance, Manchester United fans have had years and years of success, although there, there's now a generation of, of very young fans who can't really recall them winning the league. Like on a serious note, do you think that that will begin to have an impact on how Manchester United manage the club? Because it did seem that for a while there, it was tantamount for them to be able to to reach that generation, uh, regardless of being able to show them pictures of Paul Pogba holding a Premier League trophy. It was just the sheer size of Manchester United, the, the, the reach all around the world that the profile of the club had. At what point do you think that their lack of success will begin to have a commercial drawback for everybody involved in the club? I think it's really interesting because you can argue very strongly that when teams 
are successful, they undoubtedly pick up glory hunters. Manchester United picked up millions of glory hunters or younger fans. So I think when fans are age, I don't know, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, they would go for the most attractive team or some of them would. And there are many exceptions to this because if you're in in Burnley, it's full of Burnley fans and, and I think that is that is great. And yet, when Manchester United were winning nothing, were still the best supported team season after season. And Liverpool, when Liverpool were win, winning nothing, I remember Liverpool playing a, a pre-season friendly in Melbourne in 2014, I think it was. They just finished seventh. 95,000 people are there. Liverpool are massive. And of course, Liverpool have got a good team and a good manager now. So I don't think it just wears off, off quickly. And I think that if you look at the engagement of a story involving Manchester United against one with Manchester City, it's like eight, nine, ten times as big. And maybe you'll you'll know that from at your end on the, the, the coverage that both teams get in, in the Republic of Ireland. But City clearly commercially are becoming more successful the bigger they are. The demographic of football fans is also changing. It's becoming very, very globalised. And the Premier League is watched in huge numbers in countries like Nigeria, India, Indonesia. I get loads of messages from South America. Um, so it, it, it's really interesting. But I think United is this really dramatic soap opera a lot of the time and it pulls people in. But yeah, of course I worry. And I remember Liverpool books selling really well maybe 10 years ago and it seemed that Liverpool fans... Because the present wasn't so good, they looked towards the history and they bought books in huge numbers. They, they outsold Manchester United books by a distance. And I can see now that United fans are, are dipping back into history more and more. And, and that frustrates fans as, again, because the present isn't as good as, as it should be. But then this is the reality for most football fans. Most football fans do not support teams who, who win everything, anything. There are so there are, there is a, there can only be one league league champion, one FA Cup winner. Manchester United have completely underwhelmed since 2013, and not only that, spent squandered um, a billion on on indifferent, ineffective uh, recruitment. So it, it hasn't been good enough, and that and that concerns fans. Just on that point, and and I, I'm interested in your sense of of what the evolution is next because. A big play was made of the fact that the the football brains um, are young and, and slightly inexperienced and they were central in, in getting Ranić involved and the two-year deal for Ranić would suggest that he will have some involvement in structures and policies. I don't know if that in, includes recruitment. Like, What's the sense of where that part of the club is going and how well they're doing in terms of imposing what's coming next like depends who you ask at the club. To me, I see everything as being in in a state of flux. I think it's a fluid situation where Ralph Rangnick, if he leads Manchester United to the Champions League this year, improbable as that may sound, his stock will be so high that he will have power bestowed to him because he'll be seen as someone who's who's made reforms and it's worked. If United carry on as they are doing and and are disappointing then there will be less appetite to listen to his his pearls of wisdom and more people saying, well, he's only actually coached a team for two years in the in the last 10, et cetera, et cetera. So it's quite a complex makeup at the moment. 
And the, there are power shifts, there are power vacuums, there are people leaving the club, not just on the football side, uh, the, the comms uh, director is going to leave. Um, and he's done a, he's been there for, for three and a half years. So Richard Arnold has come in as well because Ed Woodward left um, only a couple of weeks ago. So politically United is, is changing in, in terms of its structure as well. But it is all about results. I think Richard Arnold will demand um, that the football side is performing and be quite hard on the people making those decisions. And I think everyone will get a chance to make um, a decision. People like John Murta, who decided, along with Darren Fletcher, that Ralph Rangnick was the man. And if he does well as the man, then more power to his elbow. And if he doesn't, then less power to his elbow. So when, when the team is successful, there's many people looking to take a share of that credit. And the opposite is also true, and, and that affects the mood with everything. The next manager has not been appointed yet. United have got their favoured um, candidates, and now is the time when you know, there's back-channel diplomacy, if you like, where United will be sounding out people, are you interested? Other managers will be offering themselves as well. Uh, and Ralph Rangnick's view will be taken into account. But I think for him at the moment, his priority is to get United into a top four. Who's signing players? If because obviously you don't sign a player in the summer without having made the the plans now, put the money in place, decided how much you're going to spend, done all the scouting, and how they're going to fit into the system of whatever your manager actually wants. So who's making those decisions? Well, who's the manager? Who's going to be? It's, it's tricky, isn't it? Because United have got the targets for next season, but what if a new manager comes in and says, "Well, they're actually not my my target." So who is signing them? Well, you've got the football structure. And you've got um, people like John Murter and, and Darren Fletcher. And there's, there's I wouldn't we'll use the word committee, but there's a lot of football brains there. And in the past, they have voted on whether a, a player should, should come in or not come in. Uh, the manager would have the final say on that. But the manager can't possibly be watching a fullback at wherever or a midfielder or an attacker wherever every single week. So... Oli Gunnar Solskjaer had his own personal scout, for example, but he's obviously left the club. So I said it was in a state of flux and, and that much remains true. United have got their targets, but who who decided them targets? I think Oli Gunnar Solskjaer would have, been, would have been part of that. And then you have the market where I'm still baffled as to who signed Donny van der Beek because I feel that he was offered to the club at a time, at a good price, and at a time when United fans were demanding players uh, but I'm just not convinced in this model of if we buy one more player, everything will be okay. If we buy two more players, everything will be okay. I'm sick of this cycle. I've been through it so many times where new managers come in and continue to come in and say, oh, this is, this is terrible. And privately, this is terrible. We've got to rip it all up and start again. I'm not convinced that everything does need to be ripped up and started again. Nor am I convinced that in just buying big names because um, they're big names and they excite fans. I think... United fans have been suckers for punishment there. Uh, and me too. You know, I was excited when Bastian Schweinsteiger signed, but I wasn't watching him every week in the Bundesliga. And I was excited when Cristiano Ronaldo signed as well. That's part of the emotion of, of being a football fan. But I could argue equally strongly as to whether that is a good or bad move. So who's, who's signing the players for next season? I think um, John, John Murta... Uh, Darren Fletcher, certainly football-led decisions as opposed to um, executives making the decisions. But these agents have to have contacts with 
individuals at Manchester United. So I think that's not with Richard Arnold, whereas it, it would have been with um, with Ed Woodward. So you've still got some of the old people there. Matt Judge is a negotiator. He would be the go-to for many of the agents and they might call him and say, hi, Matt, I represent X player. Are you interested? And he might say, not for us at the moment, or yes, I'm interested, or just keep us up to date, keep us in the loop on it. So that's how it works. And United have got a budget and that budget was spent at the start of this season when Ronaldo came as well. And there's one reason why United didn't sign anyone in the transfer window, but loan some players out because they had, they had too many players. The wage bill was too high. And that, that is like uh, the, the billion and the, the squandering of that is going to be one of those stories that is a long chapter or many multiple chapters in the book whenever the corner does get turned and people can look back with a bit of, uh, uh, I don't know, whatever, whatever sense they will have of, of this era. One, two, two last questions for you. The Brighton game. Every game now is a massive game. These games are all cup finals. It's uh, a Brighton team who are in decent form and who are actually only seven points behind United with the game in hand. So if they were to win this, they'd suddenly be closing closing in on Manchester United, which is not what United fans expected. So an opportunity for them to put things right? Yeah, but we could have said the same thing last week, the week before, the week before, the week before. It's same old, same old. Brighton are decent. They're certainly in better form than they were before the game. This game was scheduled for, I think it was December the 18th. It was one of the games which was cancelled um, because of COVID. United have got a very intense block of, of fixtures after that two-week break recently before the Middlesbrough uh, game. And people at the club felt it was a good start into those fixtures to be playing a championship team at home, to be playing Burnley away, then Southampton, because the biggies are coming against Atletico Madrid. The, the, the games are getting gradually harder. So Brighton, in theory, should be more difficult than, than, than Southampton. And Manchester United need to be winning these matches. But I'm saying the same thing every single week. I'm sick of hearing the sound of my own voice um, because United continue. I just wouldn't be surprised if they started really well against Brighton, led 1-0 at half-time and then drew 1-1. And we have the same conversation next time you ring me. And in Europe and that Atletico game, that, that is a bigger game because it's the Champions League and Atletico Madrid. I, I watch a lot of Spanish football as well. They've been just as frustrating to their fans as Manchester United fans have been uh, this season. So which which of those teams can be worse? Because one of them's got to go through and not, it's not going to be decided on penalties. Um, the uh, Barcelona derby was last night, Espanyol versus Barca. Xavi has yet to impose a playing style that people would, I think, expect from him. But certainly he seems to be getting a, a response in, in terms of the old uh, spirit anyway. Yeah, he does. He's talking about a style, but the evidence I'm seeing, and I watch quite a lot of Barcelona, is um, more about what you're saying. It's that never-say-die spirit. They've been getting lots of late goals. 96-minute uh, equaliser at Cornea last night against Espanyol. Espanyol felt really hard done to after the, the game at Camp Nou earlier on in the season. And I think they deserve to beat Barca. They played really well and their fans were going crazy. It was going to be the first time they'd beaten Barca in their new stadium, which opened in 2009 uh, with Xavi. Um, he's bringing players in. I do think he's making some progress. This isn't the, the the doom scenario at the start of the season when players were just being offloaded and offloaded. Barcelona have borrowed some money. They brought some players in. Fans are now back in, in the stadium. Uh, they play Napoli in the Europa League. That's this week, actually. In fact, I'm going 
better gonna get my my acting order. I've got a lot of big games in in February with all the European stuff. And I think if Barca could win the Europa League, the finals in Seville, a place where they famously lost the 1986 European Cup final against Stour, fans have they've they've had this massive drop off. But I think they would accept this season a top four finish and winning um, the Europa League. Sounds a little bit like Manchester United, don't they? <laughs> but they, they, they brought good players. I think there's lots of really good young players. Gavi's fantastic. He's 17 years old. Um, one of the best players against Espanyol. Um, Pedri. Traore was Barcelona's best player against Espanyol. Really strong and powerful down the right. Luke de Jong, a derided figure, but he keeps on scoring. I think it's fantastic. People were saying... Uh, never good enough, never Barca class. And he probably isn't. Get rid of him, get rid of him now. But then he keeps scoring goals. So I love it that football throws up these little storylines and he scored a great goal to to equalise in the 96th minute against Espanyol. Andy, good stuff. Great to have you with us. Enjoy the trips. Cheers. Thank you. Take care. It's Andy Mitten there. Um, what do you think is going to happen against Brighton? Uh, one all draw. Is that a, is it like a Republic of Ireland situation now? Where it is that way or Burnley? Like I know Burnley have only lost, uh, I've only won one game, but um, against all the good teams, they draw one all, except Liverpool yesterday. It's, That's why that that win is surprisingly important. It's obviously unusual that they would be allowed to play at the same time as the Champions League, isn't it? But that's obviously been the such such a detrimental situation as the Premier League's been faced with COVID this year that you're going to have a triple header of action tomorrow night. Um, Adam Ede obviously injured ahead of the game at the weekend and says the uh, word afterwards was going to be that he will be out for a matter of weeks as opposed to months so fingers crossed that's uh, sooner rather than later that he's back because he was just finding form under Dean Smith as well we'll talk more about that during the week but OTBIM is brought to you by Gillette good morning start with Gillette put your best face forward with their new and improved razors good morning lads I know Ireland lost against France but this game was a lot more beneficial to us in the long run than a lucky win with Sexton in the team we learned a lot to stand to us at the World Cup that's Patrick McHugh and Darrow Toole says you just had to slag the French cuisine <laughs> yeah there was anger in Antoine Dupont's eyes I could tell more pate exactly what was, the, what was the, the croque monsieur that you went big in on last week? Oh, I mean, there was a pair of us in that. I mean, yeah, there was. We got uh, we, we got our, our own better croque monsieurs obviously delivered into the office on Friday. Yeah, the good folks at Grilla. Their hambo is mm-mm-mm. Was it good, yeah? That was good for you. You missed it, did you? Yeah, it wasn't here. It's 8.38 this morning. Alan Quillen is with us. Alan, good morning to you. Morning, lads. How are you? Uh, the debate about the decision-making um, for the kick to the corner versus... Uh, kicking for the points. I, I understand that, but let's let's just zoom out a little bit um, and take those kind of final eight, nine minutes uh, in its totality. It seems like we weren't as efficient and it seems like our decision-making generally wasn't great. Um, now, we say that from the comfort of our couches. You've been in those environments. Why were Ireland maybe less capable of um, executing their game plan at a high level during those final few minutes? Um, well, not just the final few minutes, Ger, probably throughout the whole game, the breakdown was an issue. The ball was a little bit slower. The speed of, of the ball coming back to um, Gibson Park first, firstly, and then Conor Murray when he came on, that was a problem. So a lot of people are talking maybe about the leadership and uh, the decision to go for the penalty rather than kick to the corner in the 72nd minute. But look, I, I thought this showed great leadership and great character in that second half. France are a very good side, just made it really difficult for them. So um, not being able to impose their game plan was down to French French defence and 
they're the pressure they put on Ireland. There's some decisions they look back on when they analyse the game. Um, they were a little bit deep at times um, in the back line, and then some of the forwards were a little bit flat, taking it into to heavy traffic around around the corners. So, um, culmination of things um, and small margins came up against him. 18 turnovers in the game is is way too much. Uh, the penalty count in the first half in particular just allowed France to keep the scoreboard ticking over when we really needed not to give them opportunities to, to score and sometimes the penalty being conceded was actually the best outcome because it looked like they were going to score a try against us um, just to go back to the, the end like we actually kicked the ball away pretty much with like 45 seconds left to go the type of decision making that isn't normally associated with this team yeah, um, I said it in commentary and Andrew Kant, when Hugo Keenan got the ball, the the French come half kicked it downfield. Keenan has a lot of time. Um, Andrew Conway indicated straight away to him, obviously verbally and physically with a hand indication to put it up in the air. The only explanation to that is he didn't know that there was only 30, 40 seconds left in the game. Um, it was it was a time where Ireland had to to try and run back and and go and win the game. So, yeah, the, when you're out in the field, 81,000 French people, well, there's four or 5,000 Irish, but seven, over 70,000 French people screaming and roaring. It's difficult. They didn't know the um, what was left in the clock. And, um, you know, sometimes when you don't have the ball and, and France are defending and, and they made it very difficult. And, and the way they defended, they had shooters coming up from the outside, blocking off passing channels and stuff like that. Damien Penno did it a lot from his side of the wing. Anton Dupont was a shooter out of the line so many times and he made so many effective tackles and stopped Ireland's attack. So, yeah, it's just down to pressure, Ger, some of the decision-making. And, and France are a very, very good side. So um, it was disappointing, the results, but I think there's a lot of positives there. And, you know, if Ireland were to play France again next week, if it was a back-to-back fixture like we see in Europe, um, I think they'd get some of these things right and better and and you know it'd still be a very very close game I think and but some of those things and France were very very effective they didn't play a lot of rugby at times they kicked the ball a lot up the middle of the field and they relied on their power game and their pressure particularly in those physical exchanges Is the sense that France are also improving at the moment Alan that if you played that game a couple of different times that France would also learn from the experiences Probably. Um, would they attack more? Um, Ireland defended very, very well. Um, you know, if you look at the two French tries, I think, look, OK, the, the first one is a quick line out on and they come back down, come back right across the field. And uh, there's plenty of Irish numbers there. When uh, when Intimac kind of throws that pass in field, you know, on another day that could have been picked up by an Irish player. It was speculative. Um, DuPont runs those inside lines all the time. That's why he's, he scores a lot of tries like that. Uh, James Ryan was covering Mofana and Ronan Kelleher was was the next Irish player inside and he just kind of switched off a little bit uh, and the ball landed perfectly in, in, into the hands of, um, of DuPont. So they got fortunate, but you get fortunate with those ones when you pass in field and somebody's running a line like that. Um, and then the other one, the Sarah Bay one, Ireland were in possession um, 10, 15 yards out from their own line, won the line out, Doris carries, and Ireland are just a little bit high at that breakdown. 
something they're really good at exiting from their own 22. And, you know, Tau Fefanua, he kind of lifted Josh van der Fleer out of it. The ball shoots out the side of the ruck and they score. So um, would they get better? Probably on, but I think you never know. Like it, it, both sides were going to defend very, very strong against each other. And that's what good sides do. So I think Ireland looked more dangerous in attack, even though, um, you know, France were scrambling across a lot of the time and they they stopped Ireland from making... Like at one stage, Hugo Keenan went up the middle of the field with a great counter-attack and he nearly got his hands free to a supporting Irish player only for two points making the tackle. You know, there was there was last-minute brilliant tackles from him throughout that game. He's just a phenomenal player. Gets spoken about a lot in attack and what he does, and rightly so, but defensively, he does so much work for France. So, yeah, France would maybe improve again, but would Ireland get better at the breakdown? And is there anything you can do about that power? Um, you can probably be a bit... Ireland could be a little bit more shrewd in moving that point of attack a little bit wider. They were quite narrow in some of their carries and and, and that helped France. Uh, is there anything you can do about the power? Like, does Henderson come in for Tyburn? Like, it, I don't... You know, Tyburn is a far superior skill set, a far superior rugby player, but he doesn't have the power that Henderson does uh, Henderson's hands are nowhere near as good as Tyg Burns so it's not like there's a perfect scenario here is there? No there's not you can't just in- invent um, you know that ballast that maybe s- some teams have South Africa have it um, France have it and and you know you take Willems off and and Walkie and they bring on Flamand and and Tau Fefenua who you know that kind of size and strength um, just gives them Gives them gives them more of an advantage there, but you know overall the front the front row aside from Antonio and Billumsa, they're the two the two big 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 brutes who who do a lot of damage. Um, I don't think it's a major concern. Henderson when he came on showed um, you know he stripped a couple of balls. Um, he's very powerful and strong. And For, yeah, you're right. Sorry, to kind of, just, just to like, is there a world where you play them both? for the France game for a South Africa game but for a New Zealand game you don't where Byrne moves to six and whoever moves to eight it's either Conan keeps his place or Doris uh, plays eight starts and Conan moves to the bench and that's your back row cover then is either Caelan Doris or Conan and that uh, for these games you decide that you're going to get the extra strength and you'll maintain the ball playing skills and you lose a little bit in terms of mobility but not much and that's just it that that's the deal you make with the devil it's a possibility i think but you know just going back to your question on the power Ger, i just think that um particularly in the first half ireland needed to move it at the the, point, the the attack a little bit wider i think there was a couple of carries from from our back row that they just got smashed in the game line and it's down to the initial point of contact. France made it a nightmare at the breakdown. And that's an area that will disappoint Ireland because they probably need... I think there's more of a need to just be more efficient in your first point of contact. And, and Ireland did that so well in the second half. OK, they still had some turnovers. I think the penalty kind... Oh, the line's gone. The uh, penalty count was not great in the first half. Mm-hmm. 
No, it, it certainly wasn't. It's an, it's an interesting one, isn't it? It's like, I mean, the conversation around Ireland's power, it's different to a couple of years ago, but it's also kind of the same. <laughs> it's not, it, it, there's an, Ireland are, play, are a very different team now, but there is well, a sense of deja vu. Well, when we were talking with Ron Lugar last week, it's like, oh, the question was, how do you stop their 9 and 10? But actually, the question needs to be, how do you stop that giant front five? Yeah. Which is the same question that Leinster have had which is the same question that Ireland had against England. It's like, it's different because this this French team, I would say, are better than that England team. Like they're certainly more creative. Alan's back. Sorry, you were making the point about the penalty count in the first half. That's where we lost you. Yeah, I think there was a couple of those penalties that were very harsh in Ireland. Um, the Andrew Conway one in the first half, where Angus Gardner said he 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 hit Jamina uh, in the air. There was certainly two in the second half that there wasn't any clear release at the breakdown. Um, that just could, on another day, could have went went towards Ireland. So, But when your penalty kind is higher than the opposition, that doesn't help either. What's What would your game plan be now with the out-half situation? I mean, Joey Carberry, I felt anyway, really came into the game. Uh, like, as much as you can argue about how good or otherwise he was, it definitely felt that he was better later in the game than earlier in the game. So... Is that a sense that, you know, you've got to keep playing this guy and maybe Italy is actually an audition for a starting jersey for the final two games? Um, yeah, but I think Johnny Sexton would probably need a game. Um, I think what we saw from Joey Carberry was that uh, we saw a lot of positives and and this will be, you know, beneficial in the future for him. Um, probably... To get used to 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 the the speed and the pace of what what Ireland did in November, and and against Wales last week, particularly taking to the ball to the game line, I think um, that's some an area maybe that he will look at and the Irish backline will look at. Um, that sometimes we were a little bit deep, and you know, do you keep playing him? I don't know. I think. Um, it's over two weeks. It's two weeks till, till we play Italy. Johnny Sexton wouldn't have played then since the Welsh game. Um, there probably is for there's for and against. Um, I'm not sure. I think Sexton, the way he played against Wales and the way he played in November is still makes this Ireland team better. Um, but I was really encouraged by what Joey Carberry did. Um, you know, some people were saying I was looking at some stuff online. Just because he didn't mess up didn't mean he had a good game. Well, he still did lots of good things. Um, I think he was a little bit nervous of not making big mistakes by throwing passes or, or you know, pushing the, 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 the boundaries a little bit. I think he was very solid and secure. And there was lots of good moments from him. But probably there's Sexton probably had the confidence to go and do things a little bit quicker and a little bit closer to the game line, particularly in the backline attack. Who's making the call then to kick for the corner or to kick the points? Because it looked like there was a four-man conflab. Yeah, I think it was James Ryan, wasn't there? Carberry was there. Conor Murray was had an input. Um, there was three or four Irish players around him. Um, I think it's down to James Ryan. Um whether any there was no no one came in with water or anything like that or any um so I there wasn't any messages from the sideline. I think it was down to James Ryan. Um because Carberry would have probably done whatever whatever he wanted. Connor Murray had some input on it. Um I I thought the corner was was the better option. Um it was probably looking 
if Ireland brought it back to three points and then they'd still have to score a try to win the game, another penalty would give them a draw. Would that have been better than than a bonus point loss? For sure. So um, you're kind of damned if you do and damned if you don't. But I, my own opinion, would I would have went to the corner. I just thought Ireland were turning the screw there. We lost the line-out. Um, I think the indecision and the the... the the problems Ireland had at the line-out earlier in the game probably dictated that. And maybe, you know, Josh van der Fleer gets a mall right, a mall try right after half time, doesn't he? And I just thought the one we lost where Tygborn kicked the ball through for that 50-22 um, was an, an incredible kick um, and crossed the, the, the number six for France. He stole the line-out. In, in my opinion, when you watch it back, this was a problem for Ireland throughout the game. There was no clear gap in the lineout. France were throwing players across in the air, which you cannot do. And he came straight across that lineout and stole it, slapped it back, and even fell way through on the Irish side. It should have been a clear penalty to Ireland. Um, so maybe the decision around that and the frustration from James Ryan, because he was speaking to Angus Gardner a few times about them, France coming across in the lineout and uh, it wasn't refereed by him, so um, the decision to, to go for the post maybe was dictated probably by that. Is that the type of thing that James Ryan just gets better at and more forceful and more convincing of referees as he gets practice at this, or is that just Angus had decided, Angus Gardner decided, well, that's how I'm going to referee today and I'm not going to listen to anything? Yeah, James Ryan will get better. It comes with experience. He's captain Ireland a few times um, and it's getting a feel for the moment. Look, if they go to the corner and... Um, Sorry, I mean, I mean, I mean influencing the referee about the whether or not the line-out is being refereed yes. properly as yes. opposed to the corner decision. Is that the type of thing that Sexton doesn't put up with and so therefore it's like, you, you have to look at this? You know, and There's a way of saying that and I thought he should have been more force, forceful in the first half. If you go back and watch the first line-out of the game, there was absolutely no gap and even balls Ireland won in the line-out. They were, they were, the gap was being closed. They were being interfered with in the air. Um, and that was in numerous line-outs. It wasn't just one or two. He spoke to Walkie, who Craig Evans, the assistant referee, intervened after the second or third line-out. And Angus Garda, because I can hear it on the ref mic, he's speaking to Walkie saying, don't, don't come across the line-out like that again. Like, it's not a... a if you come across the line and you commit the offence, you should be penalised. Yeah. You don't kind of... It was no good to Ireland and there was a few times James Ryan, he probably needs to be a bit more forceful out in the open um, to say that, you know, this this is none or, wh- or whatever. And credit to France. I do it myself. Oh, look. I probably have done it. But it unsettled Ireland's attack. It unsettled Ireland's attack. Yeah. And it caused a problem. And I guarantee you, in the review for Angus Gardner, this will come up it'll come up that um, this should have been refereed better. He, he had, you know, look, people, it isn't sour grapes for me. I think um, there was things there that Ireland would easily highlight that were, 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 weren't were right. Yeah, well, in fairness, you said um, it during the commentary, so it's not sour grapes. We could have won the game. We'd, say, we'd still be saying the same thing, but um, in the long run, uh, not the worst thing that there's like a, a little, the Jets are cooled, I think, from everybody's perspective. Yeah, I think so. And look, it was always going to be a tough, tough game, Ger. And I think the character they showed, the positives you can take out of the second half would indicate that, yeah. well, if they could do things a little bit better at the breakdown, figure out a way of moving France over and back a little bit, um, 
you know, could easily have won the game. I think the big turning point, okay, when Ireland are 22-7 down, um, you think the game is going to get away from great character to come back. But right. that Cyril by try in the second half was, was the, the one killer. that really kind yeah. of killed it. All right, Alan, we'll leave it there. Thanks a million. Cheers. Cheers, lads. Thanks. That's uh, Alan Quinn, and you'll hear him on the Red 78 podcast this week. You can subscribe to the Red 78 wherever you get your podcasts. Of course, you can uh, find it in the OTB Rugby stream as well. OTB AM is brought to you by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved Razors. Big weekend in the Allianz National Hurling League. An opportunity for us to see some of the teams up against each other for the first time this year and uh, plenty to get our teeth stuck into. Let's hear Henry Shefflin. We're going to speak with Karen Carey in a moment, but let's hear Henry Shefflin speaking to Galway Bay FM after Galway's win against Limerick in the Gaelic Grounds. Limerick lost Garot Hegarty, I think. It was important that we got the results mm. as well to build on that. And with 10 minutes to go, it was still Nick talk. So and that's just the nature of Limerick. And I think just probably the, the man down and just the energy sat down for, for Limerick just probably told in those last few minutes but delighted with our lads to, to get that performance and obviously the bonus is, uh, results as well and the fact that Limerick got a great start they were 1-1 to no score up after a couple of minutes but you answered that pretty quickly I think you got the next five points and from then on in it was a humdinger of a game yeah, I, I thought so look there was a passage of play that were, probably weren't good and touches were off and stuff like that but overall yeah no it was and it said they started well and the crowd were really behind them but it, it was brilliant to see the Galway crowd get behind us as well and come on the end you could hear the show it's coming up so uh, it's very positive in that sense so look but look we're very realistic it's a national league it's the second round of the league Limerick don't have much work done yeah. and as well as that they were down to 14 men for a long passage in the second half Kieran Kerry good morning to you how you doing? I'm good sir good morning to yourself um, Henry Shefflin's voice was a little bit hoarse there I know league isn't supposed to count for that much but he was obviously shouting his head off he was, yeah. But to be fair, you know, no matter what dressing room Henry will go, in, go into, no matter what colour of the jersey or the county, he's going to command respect straight away and there's going to be a kick. And to be fair, we saw it yesterday and they were really up for it. And, you know, a very honest assessment out of him there. You know, they left down the smaller come after, even though he's quite aware that it's, it's a second league game and it's his second week in February. But yeah, you know, it was, it was a very good performance. As, ne- as neutrals, we are all hoping that we're going to see Limerick tested in a really meaningful way over the next couple of seasons. And I, I know that's difficult for Limerick people to uh, fully want to happen. But certainly, uh, uh, there is a kick in this Galway side. There has been a response. They have the physicality that will allow them to at least go toe-to-toe with Limerick. So it's setting up for a nice rivalry. Yeah, without a doubt, and I suppose the proof will be in the pudding when you come back in about 10 or 12 weeks' time. You know, it's pretty obvious from the naked eye when you're looking at Limerick in the last two league ends, there's a lot of puffing and puffing, a lot of panting. So that tells me there isn't a whole pile of work being done at present with a major a major plus yesterday. You know, and in fairness to John Kiley, he's been very consistent in this in the last number of years, uh, using the league for developing players, and they're after finding a very good one yesterday in Cahill O'Neill. So... They'll be adding to it, even though the two results haven't been great. But he'll be extremely happy with Cotton and Elias for coming away with four points of play. Tell us about Carl, will you? Yeah, well, yeah, I've seen him last year a few times, the early stages of the league with Cork. But obviously, prior to that, I've seen him at minor and at 21 level, and he's been awesome at both grades. Uh, you know, he takes authority, uh, whether he's centre forward or half forward. Uh, he's, he's able to take a, a pop pass. But yesterday, you know, his four points that he got, they were all different. Yesterday was a huge test for him because he's going to meet no one physically as stronger than the Galway outfit or the Galway players. And there was two balls that really popped out to him. You know, most inter-county players 
developed a bit of time, a bit of space, that split the post, but he was able to win his own 50-50 ball, put it over the bar, win a few frees and create a few old scores, so he's going to be a big one out for this year. It's, you'd kind of almost take 14 bad Limerick performances as long as he played well over the weekend. That was kind of the most important thing that John Kiley would have been looking for on Saturday. Yeah, well, he would have been looking for, obviously, the attitude had to change against Offaly, you know, and definitely it, it, did, it did crank up a few notches. But I'd say they probably weren't really, you know, ready for Henry, uh, you know, managing Galway and Galway coming down and, you know, Limerick are preparing for a three in a row. So Galway, whether it was Galway, Wexford, Kilkenny, Tipperary, Cork, every county team out there present at the moment are, are waiting and mad for a cut off Limerick. And Limerick need to be mentally, psychologically ready for that. Is there anything at all that you've seen in the opening couple of weeks that would concern you, Kieran, or have you written everything off as just early season and lack of preparation? Yeah, I, I suppose they're possibly slightly derailed, slightly. Uh, there's a lot going on, I suppose. I'm watching those interviews after matches. They're, they're slightly different from what they were before. Small bit of a squeeze put on. And the big one the big one here is, you know, time out, time out, they call in basketball. The water breaks definitely is going to unset Limerick slightly, you know, because Limerick used those two water breaks to organise, regroup, and plan for the next quarter. So you're, you're gone from four quarters of hurling down to two second halves. So, and I suppose the, the will, to be fair, the will counteract that in some shape or some form, because whatever was put in front of them the last number of years, they were able to jump the fence and apply what they need to apply, which is a new territory to them now, to kind of back to kind of half-time hurling. So, you know, and I suppose there's a process getting used to that. But uh, would I be pressing the panic button yet? No, not a hope for it. You said a proof will be in the pudding in around 10 or 12 weeks' time. Is Galway going to be the team that will concern them the most at the outset, do you reckon? Potentially, my own personal opinion, yeah. But they have a fair tough few fences to jump themselves. Mm. But by the time they are going to cross swords at Limerick, they have a lot of hurling to play, you know, a lot of water under the bridge by the, by the time they come across Limerick, whether it's a quarter semi or a final. And, you know, if they get that far and Limerick progress that far, then then you have a humdinger of a semi-final or a final. The one thing that happened last year in the league was that there were several flashpoints that, um, that point you make, I think, about everybody's is dying for a cut off Limerick. Limerick obviously are not taking a step back when there is a, any kind of a, a schmozzle or a row, Limerick have decided they're going to meet fire with fire and I can, you know, it's obviously worked for them. Is there any concern in that that's, Every team realises now that at some point in the game there will be a flashpoint and just that referees start to look a little bit more closely at the All-Ireland Champions and decide, OK, well, you can't get away with stuff because, for whatever reason, the spotlight is, is going to be that much more intense. Oh, without a doubt, yeah, yeah, 110% and it'll be on the top three guns, really. And, you know, even, but yesterday, if you watch Galway, you know, during the whole hour, hour of hurling, you know, they played a chart, they went long, but I suppose I was hugely, hugely impressed with, I suppose, they were hunting, hunting in packs. And, you know, they overturned Limerick yesterday on numerous occasions, which is also very new territory for Limerick. So, you know, if you are going to, if you are going to derail Limerick and catch them any, on any given day, first of all, you have to match them for strength, power, pace and speed. And after that, then if you come up with some kind of a formula that can stunt them and, you know, and I suppose for you then as a team to implement implement what you want to do, you're there with a great chance. And I suppose, looking at yesterday, the evidence of yesterday, I suppose Galway are coming pretty close to that. 
what about specifically the issue of discipline? Are you concerned in any way that Limerick are prone to little bouts of indiscipline within games? I, I would actually. I would, to be fair, you, you know, and I suppose the discipline wouldn't be high. It's not being highlighted as much when you're winning, when you're winning league titles, when you're winning months and championships, and when you're all Ireland. You know, you, you're kind of covering over the cracks. But myself personally, I'd have a slight issue with Limerick with the discipline. Yeah, and 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 even when a player like because they're all big strong men, but even when they are breaking the tackle, you know, a few of them have kind of bad habits are kind of flicking back. And, you know, they're all free. So discipline going forward will be huge for Limerick. And anything above the shoulder up is a total no-go here with so the hurley or the arm. How do you fix that, though? Because there's there's this... Um, there was a, a, a lifelong debate when Wayne Rooney was in his pomp about how do you uh, quell his anger issues. Uh, that's if you, if you stop that, that's like he becomes a lesser player. It turned out he had anger issues separately in real life as opposed to just on the football field. Like, what, what can you do as a group to say we can still be the same hurlers, even better perhaps if we're not giving away frees, without resorting to or having that little flick back or getting involved in these fights? Yeah, well, any player going out tomorrow morning, yeah, take the tight load with the county jersey, you're going to be out there hopefully emotionally balanced. You know, and that in itself is a skill. But if there's any bit of extra resentment or a bit of anger that's kind of in the head when you go on the field, it's inevitable it's going to come out. So obviously the backroom team needs to take stock and obviously if there's someone there that's consistent with the flicking and the tapping, you know, he needs to be pulled aside. And, and if there's extra help required in, so be it. Yeah. Because, like, look, I, I, it's hard to see anybody matching the skill. Goy seem to be able to match the physicality. There's certainly going to be a game if they do meet each other in Croker or Sample or wherever that, that might come down the, the, the road. Is there anybody else out there at the moment whose form you like or who you think are uh, in, in any way close to bridging the gap? Yeah, and, and I suppose if you take Cotton O'Neill yesterday, for example, you know, it's his, his first chance this year, if you like, he got a few goals last year, but inevitably, in fairness to John Kiley, you know, he obviously judge, judges matches, but no different to Brian Cody, you know, he obviously, you know, goes a lot on training. And like Colin O'Neill yesterday, you know, he's after well and truly putting his hand up. And that's what an intercounty player must do as a sub coming on. If you want to take part and you, if you want to be on 1 to 15, you know, you have to come on, you have to be consistent, and you have to do that three or four games in a row. You, there's no point coming one and playing one good game in five or six, you know. And I suppose the Limerick's bench, I suppose, going by the last two games, you know, they need to look at themselves and they need to come up to the mark because, you know, there's a good few players forwards missing. And if there's forwards missing, if you get your chance, well, there's only one way to highlight it. And, you know, that's to ignite on any day you go out. On the other, probably the, the couple of other games that really caught the eye at the weekend, obviously you had Wexford getting the job done against Clare yesterday and Kilkenny Tip naturally was the, the one that was going to uh, catch most of the attention yesterday, which was uh, the later game on TG Cahar. How much did you learn from either of these two teams yesterday? Obviously, uh, Tipperary under new management and uh, the start yesterday they won't be uh, overly complaining about any win against Kilkenny, I, I'd imagine. No, and even though it is earlier on in the league, you know, there's a sense, there's a sense of kind of watching a few of the games yesterday that you're nearly playing in the quarterfinal of the league. So there's, there's a lot at stake. Watching Tipperary and Kilkenny, yeah, very good game. It is obvious Tip have come with a new type of style, and uh, you know, there's a bit of Limerick like about it. They're working out, going through the lines. And but having said that, 
Kilkenny were there, thereabouts. I was extremely impressed with Kilkenny this time last year. They were very lucky, I suppose, not to get to the final. So they'll be in the hunt, and I suppose Colin Bonner in his first year, he will want, he will want to put down a fair statement on uh, his first year manager. But Kilkenny and Tip, they're going to be in the melting pot come the business end of this, and that's for sure. Have you ever seen anything like the late goal for Ballygunner on Saturday? Oh, no, no it was... Uh, yeah, I, I suppose I've I, I been through... Uh, two types of emotions, you know, lovely for Belly Gunner to come on and win it. And I, and I suppose Belly Hale, you know, what a sickener, what a way to lose the game. And, you know, to be fair, they were comfortable for the last 10 minutes and, you know, they nearly crossed the line. But in the modern game, especially especially the formula and the type of hurling, the way it's being played, anything can happen in the game of, in the game of hurling presently. So, you know, it's definitely down to the last whistle. And so I mix emotions, delighted for Belly Gunner. But uh, definitely fell for Bellingham. Yeah, some finish, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely unbelievable. And you know what? Now it's going to be huge, a huge boost for for Waterford as well going forward. And uh, you know, I think it's it's important to mention too, Ty DeBoer when he's come back there yesterday as well. You know, and great to see him back. He's going to he's going to add an awful lot of experience. You now, great defender, great player, and uh, you know, very versatile. So you know, best wishes to him. Great to see him back. Kieran, great stuff. Great to have you with us. Thanks a million. Okay, God bless. Bye. Kieran Carey giving us some thoughts there on the weekend's hurling. Maybe the ninety ninety four All Ireland hurling final. Fairly um Well, I thought that's where he was gonna take that there when he was talking about mixed emotions. Um yeah, Lake Lake Holes and Hurling probably have a have a sore point with a lot of Limerick people. Have you ever seen a match or oh yeah, sorry, you lost an All Ireland final like that. Good. Nice of you to remind him of it. On Monday morning he's just there, oh, this is great, I'm gonna go on to chat with the lads. You're like, Can I just Pass over the most uh, difficult moment of your career, please. Yeah, I, I hope he's like. I mean, there are, there are uh, Limerick hurlers, believe it or not, uh, children that uh, have gone through bad times in the past. <laughs> it, has, it hasn't all just been sunshine and rainbows for for people from that county. It is nine minutes past nine here on OTBAM. Your comments are streaming through. People giving out about the refereeing and there being no consequences for bad refereeing. I think that might be one of the other reasons why you wouldn't get too carried away about what happened at the weekend. Is that like you get a different referee who starts to penalise that stuff for the French, we get territory. Like, the big games in the World Cup are going to be a toss of a coin, which is what you want. Yeah, in France, obviously. In France, with a French coin. With a French coin. Yeah. Uh Right. OTB reporter Ashley O'Reilly is joining us next to chat about her experience at the Stade de France. Here's a taste of Ashley capturing the pre-match atmosphere in Paris. Excuse me. We are reporting from off the ball and we are going to try and interview some French people on tomorrow's match. Uh, my name is Abdou. I'm from Paris. Like, I'm so very happy like, to give this speech for um, off the ball. I-, I love the Irish people and I send them a lot of love every time. We love uh, English people, Ireland people. Of course, we hope uh, that France will win, but uh, in the end, the best will win. So, good luck to the both of them. No, I mean, like, no, just Irish, Irish people. people. Irish people. English people. Irish just people. Iron people. Yeah, just like, Irish. Irish people. Okay, like, just Irish. Yeah, I love good beer like that. I'm going yes. to Ireland just only for yes, good beer. Yes. Thank you so much, Ireland. And the Thank best you so much. Win, of the ball. Win, I love that. Of course. That. Ali, Ali. <laughs> I'm so very proud to give that, like, it's best information, best ever. Tomorrow you see, like, in the TV, and you can just, like, singing in the radio, is the best team ever in the world. Okay? Thank you so much. 
we love Iris, but go France! Yes, the six yes, nations. Yes. We are we, the best player yes. ever in Europe. Yes, you know good that. luck. Good luck to Ireland, but allez la France! Allez la France! Et vive la France! Yeah, it turned out they were right. Ashley, good morning to you. How are you getting on? Good morning, lads. How are you? Yeah. Um, one of the things that apparently has happened is that um, French young people have latched onto this team because, well, they're glory hunters and there's a bit of glory coming, it looks like. <laughs> yes, well, that's definitely um, evident from those two lads anyway. They called it right. They said that Ireland weren't going to be up to the level. And I think that's what we've seen sort of in the end. But yeah, even on the streets, any of the young people that I spoke to, they were really excited and uh, buzzing for the game. And just this team, really excited to, to see what this team is going to do. They were mentioned in the World Cup and the likes. So yeah, they're, they're getting on board for sure. And humble, not out in the aftermath of victory. They weren't too bad. Like they really, they, they said they love the Irish. That's what they kept saying to me. And they're really friendly, like helping me on the Metro. And, you know, I didn't know what to expect in Paris. And I didn't know if uh, people would be too friendly to, to help you out and all those things you hear the French people. But honestly, they, they were, couldn't be more accommodating to me and helpful. So, uh, yeah, I've been, I've been light of them Owen, Owen had a different experience yeah. with the uh, good folks at uh, Ryanair in Paris yeah well they're an Irish Irish people I mean uh, famously uh, a French company or not a French company like I mean I would have been interested to, to see what they would have been like had they got beaten like that's that's the true test of, of humility I, w- yeah. I would suggest yeah no I did go out afterwards to a few of the bars and it was mostly the Irish bars so we were in Corcoran's O'Sullivan's O'Hara's and it was packed full of French people, uh, like packed. And they were just saying, like, you know, they they always come out when the Irish come over because the, it's it's good fun in all the bars and the songs were still being sang. And the Irish, obviously, the result didn't go our way, but they didn't let them stop them from celebrating. That's for sure. Uh, the post-match press conference is always difficult for the captain and the uh, coach to immediately process exactly what's happened but they were certainly putting together a united front on the decision making process at the end was that largely that we've seen the clip earlier was that largely the cut and thrust of the entire press conference were there other things that were talked about and that actually didn't come up till quite quite near the end to be honest um at the start obviously when they came in the body language definitely from james ryan really gave off a a sense of he's absolutely gutted which you can't imagine but uh, it was really evident you know he didn't really speak too much and he was really quiet and, yeah, just really dejected. And, yeah, it was tough. But um, Andy Farrell, he spoke at the start just about it wasn't the plan to go 10 points down. And, you know, to, the character they showed was unbelievable um, to come back and bring it to a one-point game. And, yeah, he, he spoke about the positives and, look, the development, and Joey Carberry and Jack Carty coming out, all these things that were good things. Um, and then, obviously, the decision to not go for a trying at the end and kick it to the corner and that came up and he just said it was absolutely the right decision he's like no there was no no question about it so that that's how he felt on it that that's interesting because uh, we had Gavin Comiskey on the pay-per-view yesterday and he reckoned that there was a sequence of events that almost forced Andy Farrell into doubling down on that decision because I guess the television cameras get their interview with Joey Carberry first and Joey Carberry essentially makes the first move with the media dealings with regards to, to saying this was the right call. So I guess Andy Farrell in that press conference knows that that's after being said and yeah. and, and he knows that he's kind of got a double down or, or has everything just been read too much into there? 
that's sort of what I thought too, Owen. Uh, like, obviously, they all chat. They want to put out the best light. They don't want to be going against each other in media interviews after the game. And, yeah, he was very quick to answer the question. So, yeah, maybe it was maybe a little bit prepared and ready to go. But, like, here's also the other thing that's just after strike me there is that you've got Joey Carberry coming out and saying it was definitely the right call. Like... I mean, we're, we keep going back to like his lack of experience at this level, but at least he's coming out afterwards and is like forthright in his decision. Oh, yeah. At least he like stands over the call. I, I guess. I guess if you want to clutch at a straw this morning, it's not. It, it would be worse if Carby was like, "Oh, I'm not sure." Oh, what was James Ryan thinking, making me kick to the corner? Yeah. <laughs> where does he? Where does he get off telling me what to, that? That that would also have been interesting. That would have been a new dynamic emerging. <laughs> yeah, that would be more fun for sure. I mean, I'm not necessarily sure. We or could or it'd be like a disaster, you know. But they had a lot of faith in him, obviously. Like, his kicking all day was really on point. Um, I was delighted for him, you know, to have the performance he did. He was actually the very first person out on the pitch. Like, I was there maybe an hour and a half, maybe two hours before we were allowed to go out to our stand. And he was the first one out there. And he was, like, sort of just doing these passes over and back with one of the coaches. And he was sort of telling the coach what he wanted him to do for him, just, I suppose, just to get a feel for the ball and for the pitch. And... It was just really interesting to watch. There was no one out there, just him and the coach. So, yeah, he was he was well prepared. Look, he, he deserves, and hopefully we deserve, an unbroken run of six or eight years with him at out half for us at this point. And uh, hopefully we look back on this and go, that was an important learning post for him and for James Ryan too, who's a very inexperienced captain at this level. Like, he played a lot of rugby very early on. He's had some periods out with injury. He had some form issues that didn't see him make the lines when everybody thought he was a shoe-in and potential captain material and now he's finally getting to the point where it's like okay I'm getting to see what this is like and there are setbacks there are going to be setbacks along the way for everybody so um, yeah, all told though it seems like they were, I mean, while they were immediately devastated that there was certainly a sense that okay this is what the best team in the world right now has to offer and we were right there with them Yeah and just as he spoke there about James Ryan like it probably did lack that bit of leadership it was so chaotic, like it never settled, I don't think, until the second half. It was just constant, like, go, 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 like nothing, like, flowed in the game. And maybe that was something they were missing. But for James, yeah, it's definitely something that he, it's his first time. And out there, you know, against France, it's it's unbelievable. So we'll only see good things from him, I'm sure. But, yeah, they were really positive, really positive on the development, looking ahead to, obviously, the next game and to the World Cup and things like that because giving Joey a run and lads that come off the bench Jack Carthy as we said you know, it was all really positive in that light Alright we let it go Ashling, thanks very much that's Ashling Riley thanks, uh, who is in Paris for us and um, obviously we'll keep you up to date on everything else that moves in terms of injury news and anything else that's coming out from the squad over the next few days <laughs> as we wait for to see exactly what team is going to play against Italy. Uh, here's what's going up on OTB Sports Radio today. OTB Gold at one o'clock is inside Porrick Harrington's gaff. It's as nice as you might think. State of the Union is um, from Keith Wood at three. Mount Rushmore is County Down at four. OTB Gold is Lance Armstrong and OTB Tonight is live with Joe from seven o'clock. Up next this morning, Mike Carlson joins us to break down the LA Rams winning the Super Bowl. OTB AM. So the Rams beat the Bengals 23-20 in Los Angeles at home at SoFi Stadium to win the Super Bowl last night. I'm delighted to say Mark, uh, Mike Carlson, uh, I say last night, it was the early hours of this morning, Mike. So I suspect you're That's a little right. bit bleary-eyed, but um, what was your experience of it like? How was it? Yeah, well, and a happy Valentine's Day to you too. <laughs> um, I, I thought it was, um, it, it was the kind of messy game 
and one that, that was defined almost by more by mistakes than, than anything else. But it kind of became what we thought it would be in the fourth quarter, um, which, which was very exciting and, and very good. The, the Rams defense, especially their defensive line, which we expected would dominate the game, dominated at least in the run game most of the time. But it was the Bengals defensive line that actually played better until we got into those passing situations and the Rams started to get the sacks. And 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 the big problem, I think, um, for the Rams was the injury to Odell Beckham, which left them with without enough options because Robert um because Cooper Cup was being double covered most of the time. Stafford tried other receivers, most of them most of them let him down. And in the end he had to just forced the ball into Cooper Cup, which was not a bad strategy because it worked. Particularly in that last drive where he only had eyes like a Valentine for Cooper Cup and uh, that did work <laughs> again and again and again and again and again and again. Yeah, and you know, and that's the case for Cup as the regular season MVP got made a whole lot better by by this game. I thought they could have easily given the game MVP to Aaron Donald because he had, especially in the fourth quarter, had a fantastic game and, and made the key play really um, stopping Pirine from getting a, a first down and then pressuring um, Burrow and, and nearly sacking him on on the fourth down play. But I, but I had Cup as the MVP there and um, and had him in the betting line as well. So I was I was probably um, influenced a little bit. And, and I thought that that was a fair decision. Um, I thought, you know, Matt Stafford pretty much did what Matt Stafford does. There, there, were, there weren't really any huge surprises in this game, um, except maybe Jalen Ramsey getting beaten, you know, three times um, all on key plays. One of those shouldn't have counted, all right. I mean, the- well, you know, I understand that, and and then there's a lot of uproar about it because it was obviously a face masking penalty, but the referees were letting them play, as the as the saying goes, which I hate, but that's the way it was. And what the what the official on the sideline saw was Ramsey reaching in and grabbing Higgins, and Higgins basically pulling himself out of the grab. And because he was on the sidelines and the face masking was on the inside, he didn't see it. The only guy who could have seen it would have been the back judge at the very end of the field. And he missed it either. And in fairness, I missed it until the replay. And I think everybody did. It happened so quickly that, that, that they missed it. But if you're going to let them play, that's the kind of thing that you wind up missing. And um, you know, in the NBA, which is kind of the model for NFL officiating these days. In the NBA, they call a lot of fouls until the last two minutes and then let them play. And then in the NFL, it's the other way around. They let them play, and then all of a sudden, the last two minutes, they start calling a lot of fouls. Just explain to us then, because uh, one of the first um, comments that we had this morning was from somebody who was saying the pass interference call at the end, which... uh, really extends the drive and and I think probably is the winning and the losing of the game Cooper Cup is not really held it's the type of thing that is never really given I I called it before they did Um, you know watching it on the screen and as soon as they said oh there's a flag I said it's got to be Wilson for a hold I didn't realize that that it came late enough to me but when you watch the replay you, you clearly see him turn Cooper Cup so Cup's running from right to left, and all of a sudden, 
his body gets turned backwards. And if that's not a hold or interference, I, d- I don't know what is. Now, in again, in the tenor of the game where they were letting that sort of thing go, you know, the jersey pulls, all that kind of stuff weren't being called. I can understand why you say, well, why didn't they let it go? But to me, it, it's a hold or it's interference. It, it was it wasn't I wasn't going to complain about that. And I was also glad, you know, it was there was kind of a ticky tack hold. Uh, was it the next year? It was the next play, I think, when they had the double the double foul. And Havenstein got called for a hold. And, you know, I said, oh, finally, because he spent the whole game against the 49ers holding and never got called once. Was the play by Cup drawing to Stafford in the end zone, was that a reaction to the double coverage that you're talking about on Cooper Cup? Yeah, I mean, what you had to do with Cup was to get him in motion to get him open. Um, to to beat the guy on the line of scrimmage as, as much as you can, and and I was amazed toward the end of the game that they they actually were still in zone at times against Cup because that that's a recipe for disaster. But it was likely it was likely the last the, the last thing you would have expected. And and you remember when the when the Eagles ran um, the Philly special, which was a, which was a different thing. It was it was a more tricky trick play. Um, the Patriots had had run that with Tom Brady trying to catch it and Brady's old legs wouldn't get him onto the ball, you know, and running the same play back at the opposition is always, is always a kind of good thing. So when Nixon had thrown a touchdown pass, the, the last thing they're expecting is for you to do the same thing. And, uh, you know, Cup, Cup just missed the pass, really. It was there. Uh, what does the win of the Rams tell us about the state of the game, about Sean McVay, about how to build a roster because it frequently just seems to me the the analogy of like the NFL uh, is essentially a snow globe that has been shaken, and at the end one team wins. But it's impossible to draw too many conclusions from it. No, I, I think you're right. You're right about that. Um, you know, you can build you can build a team the way the Rams the Rams have. But in this game, the thing that stands out to me, roster building wise, is that when Odell Beckham got hurt, they didn't have a second option. Uh, Van Jefferson has been a disappointment um, for two years now, I think, in terms of being that option. When Robert Woods got hurt early in the season, he he couldn't step up. Uh, Deshaun Jackson wasn't the answer. And I think that's what happened. You know, you, you have to be very good at building, the, at, at stocking the back end of your roster in the NFL, especially they, they played 21 games this season. You know, that's that's a lot of punishment. You have to expect that guys are going to be are going to be injured and are going to be missing time. And, you know, and with the concussion protocol, you, you're going to, you know, you've got more of a chance of missing time. So I, I don't think that many teams will be in a position to be able to try to do what, what the Rams have done um, or are willing to throw away those draft picks. Now, one of the things you have to take into account is the Rams with are trading these draft picks from a position of strength, um, record-wise, which means they're low-round draft picks anyway. Um, but if you're a bad team and you want to build on the Rams, um, the Rams formula, you don't really want to be trading the first or second or third pick in the draft because odds are you're going to get an impact player um, in, in those in those spots, especially if you don't have to. Um, force yourself for a quarterback. You know, the, the you could argue, you know, oh, the Bengals two years ago could have traded that number one pick for more picks for great players under that, but they wouldn't have Joe Burrow. You know, and the next year they wouldn't have Jamar Chase, and that that's going to be the future of their team. So, so was the sense then that the, the Rams really went after this year's Super Bowl, their home Super Bowl, and that 
to hell with next year and the year after that there, there, was, there wasn't much future proofing going on here the irony obviously they've got a very young head coach who's possibly going to hang around or I'm not sure what he's going to do but it is a sense that they went all in on this year's season yeah, that that's absolutely true, and and you know they'll they'll be able to keep this team more or less intact next year. I think Whitworth's retirement and I think Beckham is a free agent um, are are the two big things that they that they have to cope with. But otherwise, they can keep this team more or less intact. And um, there's also the factor that Beckham and to an extent Von Miller. Um, Beckham was an injury replacement. You know, they had to go out and find someone to replace Robert Woods. Von Miller was a late addition because they just needed another rusher. And yeah, yeah, it worked. Um, How much, you know, a full season next year, if Von Miller were to stay with the Rams, a full season of an aging pass rusher, you're not going to get back that value that you you might have got otherwise, um, you know, unless you unless you start to rest him, which is pretty much what Denver had decided when they let him go. Yeah. And like uh, it, it was all worth it. You know, if, if next season they go one and 16, no one cares because they're a Super Bowl <laughs> team. Really. <laughs> No, that that's absolutely true. Um, you know, and and um, last year everyone was saying, you know, Bruce Arians, um, no risk it, no biscuit. But that's exactly what the Rams did. Um, they got their prize, and and you know, you can't see that team collapsing, although they're in a very difficult division. But you know, so next year they might wind up being a ten and seven kind of team. Uh, but they have the Super Bowl in 2022 to look back on. Yeah, I had not heard a single whisper about this beforehand, but The Athletic were writing about potentially Aaron Donald walking away into the sunset having won the Super Bowl. Now, he was like pointing at the ring when there was still 30 seconds left running around the pitch last night. Didn't strike me as a man who was going to say, yeah, okay, I've had enough. But in the aftermath, he wasn't immediately saying, oh no, absolutely, I'm coming straight back. He was like, I'm just going to live in the moment and celebrate. So there is a scenario where he goes, where McVeigh says... I'll just take the 10 million a year from ESPN to do Monday Night Football. I'll have no work to do apart from watching football for a couple of years <laughs> and do the do the John Gruden thing. Is there any scenario where this happens? Um Donald as you say it only came up over the weekend. Um the the first suggestions of this um and he doesn't have much left to achieve. Although he's still, you know, he's still relatively young. And for him, I think there was a big personal thing in this game because he blamed himself in a lot of ways for the Patriots beating the Rams 13-3 four years ago because basically he was single blocked that whole game. And if he if if you can get away with single blocking Aaron Donald, that that's a great recipe for for beating the Rams. McVeigh, I think. It's funny because Zach Taylor's the guy who coached under Gruden. He, you know, he's like a, almost like a Gruden family member. He coached. Um, he started with John Gruden, and he um, coached under Jay Gruden. Um, you know, he he'd be the guy uh, you'd think would go on. And McVeigh, I, I think McVeigh keeps coaching. To be honest. Um, Although, you know, I somehow he managed to not burn any other timeouts after the first half, which was a huge accomplishment for him. Uh, and yeah, I, I just think he makes he makes things 
so much more difficult um, than they than they need to be. Although Cincinnati gave them full credit, they just wouldn't let the Rams run, which we we kind of thought they would do. You know, we really thought they would pound the ball and and then work work to um, to make the make the Bengals get out of a get out of a, a too deep shell of defense, and and they were never able to do that. You know, which and then losing Beckham, that, that just made their offense really stall. Uh, and so you got to give them a lot of credit for finally figuring out a way, you know, to get through that, even if that way is just like, okay, we give it, <laughs> Matt, you're going to pump the ball to Cooper Cup and that's it. We're going to let our best player make, make the plays. So good instinct, both Donald and McVay are back or McVay definitely Donald. I think McVay, I, I would put McVay at 90% and Donald, I, I don't know. I don't know well enough, but you know, from what you read, you'd have to say he's kind of in the sort of 60, 40 range, you know, right now he might be thinking he's done everything he needs to do. And then, you know, come, come May or so he starts to think, well, maybe I'd like to play football again for another year. Yeah. I mean, just to put in context for people who are maybe casual or no fans, there's a possibility that he'll get spoken about. He will definitely get spoken about as one of the greatest players of all time. But they, when they come to speak about defensive players, he'll be right up there. And some people will say that he is as good a player as has ever played the game. Yeah, I mean, he's in terms of defensive linemen, um, there are guys who've been like him, Warren Sapp, in in alternate years when he wasn't overweight, played a lot like like Aaron Donald did. John Randall on the Minnesota Vikings was a, a bit smaller but quicker. Um, those those are the two guys who really you know jump out jump out at me. But he's certainly been the best defensive player in the league for a number of years, which is nowadays kind of unusual for a defensive tackle to get that. You know, you don't get. You don't get the sack count that attracts the attention, but any tackle who gets, you know, over over 12 sacks in a season, say, you know, is is, ab- is absolutely playing fantastic. And he's mm, with the great with the greats. I mean, you, you know, any discussion of the greatest defensive players begins and ends with Lawrence Taylor. Um but Donald is certainly up there, I think, in the in the top group of defensive tackles of all time. And probably probably the one who you could say if you wanted to use him in the kind of defense that requires him to two gap, to to control two blockers, he's great. And if you want to use him in the kind of defense that requires him to just beat a blocker or a double team and penetrate, he's great. And there aren't that many guys you can say that about. Are the Bengals here for the long haul because Joe Burrow is a sensation or is this one of those teams who reaches the Super Bowl and then we don't really see that much of them for a couple of years? Well, they got lucky this year in the sense that Cleveland and Baltimore were both riddled with injuries and and weren't the teams that we expected them to be at the start. um, At at the start of of the season. And so the and Pittsburgh, of course, were you know, running on seeds and stems with, with Ben Roethlisberger. So that's always going to be a difficult division for them to get out of. But I expect that they will be a better team on paper, at least, um, next season, because they're going to bring in, you assume, a little bit of offensive line help, which will make Burrow a better player. And they're pretty solid uh, on the defensive side, you know, which which we saw in this game. They, they're, they're, they brought in a lot of, uh, defensive backs this year and they 
Some of them were free agents for a reason, like Eli, Eli Apple, um, who made a couple of great plays and had a couple of bad plays, which is the story of his career. So, you know, I, I think that they've got potential to be bigger. There's a, a lot of talk always about Super Bowl letdown, how the losing team in the Super Bowl always seems to come back with a bad season um, in the in the face of that. But, you know, I, I think they're kind of a level a level-headed team, and Zach, Ta- Zach Taylor is kind of keeps them on an even keel. So, yeah, I would expect them to get better, but I think they'll have a tougher time just getting into the playoffs. Before we let you go, Mike, they uh, assembled the Avengers of hip-hop at halftime last night. What was your uh, your take and what is your review of the halftime show? Well, see, I thought Kendrick Bourne was going to be the, the Niners receiver, but it was Kendrick Lamar. Um, I got I got confused. I I, I, I liked it um, in the sense that um, the set was fantastic. So the, and the concept was really good. Um, the music didn't blow me away because I thought it was uh, what it was aimed more at a non hip hop audience. So from that point of that point of view, it, it would have sold that pretty well um, as an accessible form of music to people who wouldn't have considered it that way. But I think the big thing for me is that because in L.A. it's daytime when this game is being played because you're starting in, you know, in prime time, East Coast time. So in, in L.A. it's still sunshine. There wasn't that energy that you expect in a Super Bowl halftime show where where it's dark and the stadium is is dark to begin with. And then it, then it lights up and, and you get all of you get all of the razzmatazz and all that kind of stuff that, that goes on around the act. You didn't have that. So it, it, it was kind of like watching the Oscars when everybody's arriving for this gala, you know, kind of dinner kind of thing, but it's four o'clock in the afternoon (laughs) and you think, why are you wearing an evening gown at four o'clock in the afternoon? It it was that kind of a vibe to it. Um, So I don't think it was as exciting as it, as it might've been, but you do remember that back in 2019 when, when Colin Kaepernick was being um, ostracized by the NFL, they made a big deal of hiring Jay-Z to kind of improve their racial awareness and stuff like that. And so three years, later what we get is a, is a great halftime show but I haven't seen much else on the racial front from the NFL yeah maybe it's a handy fig leaf Mike good stuff thanks a million for joining us cheers oh thanks it's Mike Carlson giving us his uh, review of the Super Bowl last night uh, some quick comments coming through Asnier is 32 am I saying that right is that is that like a Definitely, word yeah. yeah it's Ryan's decision line out leader and captain his only question to Joey is can you kick that uh, we know the answer now pretty much Carberry can kick anything. This is good. Yeah, yeah, he's, he, he has could, been could, could he play fullback? Can we see what that's like? Like, I'd like to see a game where Sexton starts at 10 and he's a fullback, just to give ourselves some options here. I'd, I'd like to see it as well. Not, not necessarily saying it's the best option, and definitely not saying that Hugo Keenan is anything but the number one fullback in Ireland, but it'd be a nice thing to see. Okay. Um, Adrian McGrath says, everyone's raving about kicking the penalty, but why isn't Keenan getting absolutely slaughtered for kicking the ball away with 20 to go? There you go. Drop him for that. Try Carberry at 15. That's the, the option there. Uh, it's all about the breakdown. The French slowed us down, turned us over and made us cough up pens. Also, before France try, Gibson Parks kicked a ball way too high and didn't get much ground. I mean, over the course of the 87, 90 minutes, however long the rugby matches last these days, there are individual little errors. It's the totality of the picture that you need to look at. On balance, we played well for a period of the game, not long enough. The better team won by about the right amount. I think that's probably fair. Which is saying, which is saying something, given how well Sometimes the boring explanation is the truth. 
like a, a six if you, if you took that French performance in isolation and to say that they're six points better than Ireland at this stage you might have accepted that would you? I'm, I'm not sure you don't like you don't want to accept a, a defeat but it, it, like France were far from bad they were they were good and uh, <laughs> and to win France, by six points not bad but good yeah I'd like I, 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 they've obviously got some incredible players I, I do think that they can get to another level yeah but only thing I, that's not to say we can't yeah, true. These two teams are going to be pretty close to each other over the next two and a half, three years. On the day... I hope so. ...who gets refereed the way that we need the game to get refereed? Them, yeah. they win, us, we win. Like, still think their ceiling is, is a little bit higher uh, on, on the evidence of the weekend. I think that it's very difficult to compete with the heft that they have because that gives their lads more time, their creative lads, more time to be creative. And their creative lads are amazing. So. Yeah, our creative lads are pretty good too. No, you're you're not agreeing with that. I see. But uh, I mean, uh, I agreed with the penalty instead of the line at the time, and not after timing. Like I think a lot are, to be honest. Both kickers were something else. As shifty lads, I, I, uh, most people I know were definitely. Let's come on, let's go. This is it. As opposed to, oh, so we're still going to be behind. Hmm. Hmm. Interesting choice. Yeah. Uh, Carberry should start all the next three games. He will become some player for Ireland with game time. Sexton last twenty minutes to finish off the game. That's the way forward, says Trevor. I agree. I actually, at this stage, like, what's the point in short term? We have to think medium term. I would, I'd be up for giving Dan Healy some game time sooner rather than later. Like, who you bring in? Who you bring into New Zealand? Bring Ben Healy. Let's see what happens. Bring Doak. Let's see what happens. I personally wouldn't be going down that far, but I'd definitely be starting Carberry in at least one of those tests. It has to be the first one. Can't be the third one where we're 2-0 down. Yeah. Um, so if he plays well in the first one, it's a situation where he keeps the jersey. Yeah. And I think that that's the situation that they might find themselves in over the next couple of weeks as well. That if he... Okay, Italy doesn't really count. That's but, the problem. Uh, it, it seems that Quinny early on was suggesting that Sexton might start for Italy. Yeah, I mean, that, like, that would be an interesting choice, wouldn't it? Like, I mean, this utterly meaningless game, we've got to get him out because like, he always bounces back quickly. Yeah. Generally, yeah, like when he's in this form, he does. Well, he's proven it already this season for Leinster when he when he came back after yeah. little, uh, little games played. All right, we got to go. OTBM is brought to you live every morning by Gillette. Good morning. Start with Gillette. Put your best face forward with their new and improved razors. Kenny Cunningham in studio tomorrow with Owen from Half Seven. Plenty of football and rugby across the show. Irish Olympian Emmett Brennan who wants to fight on the Katie Taylor undercard in New York and open the show in Madison Square Gardens in April. He's not on the card at the moment. He's waging a campaign on social media to get Eddie Hearn to put him on the card. He says he has some pretty interesting people involved in the the walkout, potentially. Right. Um, so he will tell you all about that on the show tomorrow. Uh, Tommy, Paddy Andrews and James O'Donoghue are back recording episode four of the Football Pod tonight. If you've ever had a question for James O'Donoghue, now is your chance. They're running an Ask Me Anything for James tonight. Anything goes, I'm being reliably told. So the Football Pod... James and Dunne who ask me anything you can get it on Instagram OTB AM with Gillette put your best face forward with our new and improved razors